WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 309. You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 2209 in the Hyatt Regency Recording Studios, Miami, Florida. In today's episode, emotional support peacocks, Super Bowl fly-in, more news, your feedback, and the latest Plain Tales installment, Fighting High Demons. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 309 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast. We talk about aviation news and answer a lot of your questions and feedback. And joining me today to help me do that from her beautiful lakeside estate in South Carolina. She's a doctor, skydiver, a marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. Good to see you again. Glad to be back for episode 309 and looking forward to a great show with you and the rest of the crew. Outstanding. We're looking forward to it as well. And also joining us from just outside of London somewhere in his sprawling country estate. It's a professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London. Captain Nick Anderson. Our Captain Jeff, he'd be the one-eyed pilot here. Um... Excuse me, did I miss something? Is it speak like, talk like a pirate? Thing? Well, I thought if I only had one eye, I ought to speak like a pilot. Pirate. I think that we're probably going to hear something about whatever he's referring to uh, as soon as we introduce uh, our last contestant on the Airline Pilot Guys show. Yeah, last, but certainly not least. From a stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia, barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding pilot for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana Colton. Good afternoon. Great ba- great to be back. Yet another fantastic episode. Not to uh, get you too excited, but we're going to have another fun day. So, looking forward to it. Great to see everybody back. Dr. Steph, Captain Nick, and Captain Jeff. Thank you. Oh, come on. Get us excited, Dana. About what? About, nothing to be excited about. Yeah. I have my voice back, at least, mostly. That's good. Yeah, it's not 100%, but it's uh, definitely really better there. than last time. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I'm so excited to be with my friends again, all of you uh, there on the panel, and also everybody watching and listening. Um, it's always a highlight of my week to uh, to record the show. If you're new to the show... Our apologies. Again, we'll say that right up front. And what we do here is, uh, as I mentioned at the uh, at the beginning, is we talk about aviation news and answer a bunch of your feedback. And uh, we try to entertain you as well. And we always strive for the uh, 
accuracy rate of at least 50%. And I F think 51%. we're- 51%. 51%. I mean, we want to be it's, more accurate than inaccurate. Oh, is that like a new goal for 2018? I think so, yeah. Okay. New Year's resolutions for a month. We, we used to be content with 49. I don't know why that should <laughs> have changed. I mean, I've got to work so much harder now. Yeah. Well, as I we'd like to, to say, say something correct. We're <laughs> at at the ABG. We're upping our standards. Up yours. All right. <laughs> That's what we say. Um, so, um, let's see, Dana. You said you had some exciting news. Um, so I, I can't wait. Please tell us. Tell us, please. It's really not that exciting. Oh, okay. Then let's I get you all hyped up for nothing. Yeah, yes yesterday uh at the end of uh end of the two day trip, uh three day trip. Sorry, it only flew two of the three days. Um first off I have to apologize to main man Micah. I was in Portland, but because I was still under the weather, I did not want to go out and be social. I actually spent uh, the entire day that I was there resting, uh resting my voice and thus it uh has come no, nope, I did not drink one drink. I haven't had a drink. Since uh, the playoff game, and the next drink I'll have is on Super Bowl Sunday, and after that it'll be a while. What I'm getting commiserate. off it. I'm getting off it. I just there's no sense. <laughs> no, no, I meant you'll be drinking to commiserate. Yeah, to get yeah, get rid of my misery. Yeah, yeah, because I'm optimistic about the Patriots. I am. I always am, but I can also be a realist. So we'll see. Everybody wants to see them lose. I know that. Other than the Patriots fans, but as you can see, the Eagles. Sorry. <laughs> But yeah, so if, you're, <laughs> if you're listening to the audio only feedback or uh, podcast, uh, you're missing um, the what would we call this outfits that uh, Dana and Steph are wearing. Uh, they're uh, opposing, opposing viewpoints and uh, sides of the uh, the clash Sunday morning or Sunday. Yeah, afternoon. if I look better as a redhead, you do. I mean, I, like I don't that think color. we disagree with that. But. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, Dana. I'm, I. So anyways, uh, so I apologize to Mimi and Mike. I just wasn't feeling up to it. Um, yeah, I'm coming back into Atlanta. Had a, a very rude cust uh, customer service uh, representative that works in cabin service cleaning. As soon as we arrived, we were about 20 to 25 minutes behind schedule. So everybody was trying to get off the aircraft real quick to make their connections. Well, as soon as we opened up the door, the cabin service person, there's a trash can that's right by the main door, decided to open that door up and pull the trash out while all the first-class passengers are trying to get off the aircraft. So I kindly said to her, and I said, would you be so kind and just wait a few minutes until we get some people off because we're running so late? She looked at me and she said, no, we got to tip. Quick turn. Got to get done. Sorry. I just looked at her and I said, uh. Okay. No. Uh, you can wait a minute. <clears throat> so then I let a couple more people get off, and there's a little break, and I had the, the trash from the uh, flight deck in my hand that you know, we always have what we call a gray bag. It's our trash bag. And so I asked her to take it, and she looked at me and, and scowled, and, and I said, well, here, I'm going to put it right next to the bag that you put in the trash in. And then I turned my back, and the next thing I know is I hear F, U, and F, F, and F, and F, and F, 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 F. I turned around, and I said, excuse me? In front of our passengers? I don't think so. So I started to, started to grab my stuff to go get her, and she flew off the jetway. <laughs> down the air stairs, which 
I don't know why she did it, but she decided that she was going to have a really bad attitude. So I stood there and uh, asked her cohorts, you know, her co-workers, well, where did she go? I don't know. I don't know. Just a bad attitude. I, okay. I turned around and I looked down the jetway stairs and or the air stairs and and uh, didn't see her. So I started to go down and then she comes flying back up towards the air stairs. And she approached me and said, ma'am, I really need your name. I mean, we need to talk about this. You don't, you don't need to. And she just stormed off and ran into the airplane. I said, ma'am, I need to see your ID. I need to have your name, something. So, you know, we can talk about this. And she just, her ID around your arm, they have an armband that has a plastic, um, plastic holder for your ID. And that plastic holder was underneath her arm and by her side. So I couldn't see it. Nobody could see it. I said, ma'am, you're in violation of security protocol. You need to have that displayed in a secure area. She continued to refuse to talk to me. And then she went back down the stairs down to her service area. Well, fortunately, we're B1, B is in boy one in Atlanta. And right below it is where their service area is. So technically, in the shadow of the aircraft, I can go down there. And I did and got her boss involved and explained to them what had just occurred and why. I feel as though it's not appropriate for her to have that attitude, especially swearing it in front of our customers, and that she need to have a little uh, uh, decency as far as displaying her ID, <clears throat> which she refused to present to me when, when challenged because she didn't have it properly displayed. And, and I made sure they told the supervisor, her bosses, that my purpose here is not to get her in trouble in or terminated. I just would like for her to understand why we as all personnel that work representing ACME are thought as to be ACME pleased by all the passengers getting off the aircraft and we can't have that behavior. So that was my exciting end of my trip yesterday. So did you yeah. mean to say uh, ACME? Um, I, I'm not sure what airline <sighs> you were talking about there. No, no, I was thinking about the faucet company. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes, no. Uh, it's, your, it's your moonlighting gig, right? It's my moonlighting gig, yeah. yeah. Uh, can you edit that out, please? <laughs> oh, I can. Yes, I will. <laughs> um, we at uh, Acme, not the faucet company, um, you know, we we don't, we we are, you know, troops try to be professionals and we represent uh whether we work directly for ACME or a, a contract for ACME, we all um, we all try to be professional. And she was the most unprofessional person I've run into in a very, very long time. So, mm. just uh, that was my yeah. exciting news. But the real news is I bought a new boat. A new boat? Yeah, boat. Boat. Okay. Now we boat. were just having this conversation before we started the show about the the millions upon millions of dollars that <laughs> first officer Dana is making. I was saying, look, you you earn more than I do, and I'm a captain. So uh, and and he's saying, no, I don't, no, I don't. But I am going to buy a new motorcycle. And now apparently you've bought a boat. <laughs> what kind of yeah, boat did little, you get? Little rubber ducky boat for my for my bathtub. <laughs> Come on, it's a forty-two foot yes, yacht. No. Remote control, gold boat. taps. What kind of boat did you get? I bought a pontoon. My oh, wife nice. and I bought a tritune, actually. Tritune. Ah, interesting. Which little, is little party boat. A little party boat for the Lake Alatuna. Yeah. So when oh, anybody's nice. in town and wants to go out on the lake, 
Um, Free beer. I might have to have an APG meetup on the lake. Oh, that would be sunshine. Yeah, sounds like a good time. How many barrels can it hold? Uh, It can hold a lot because it's 27 foot long with 300 horsepower on it. It can float 15 people on it. Wow. That's a a decent sized boat. It's it's more like a uh, yacht tune. Are you going to make them all walk the plank? (laughs) Well, you know what? Okay. So we need to talk to our, to our, our uh, pirate. pirate. <laughs> <laughs> so what's going on with you, uh, Captain Nick? Are, are uh, you having any trouble with your one eye? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I've got one left. Uh, no, I was just, uh, I, I, I came back from, uh, um, where was I? I was in Washington. Came back from Washington and uh, we're kind of uh, downwind and uh, there's some idiot in a, in a high rise, uh, uh, firing a laser at us as uh, we go down, we're just about to turn crosswind. So, uh, you know, j- just the usual. We, we caught a glimpse of him, and you could see he was trying to target us because you could see the laser like a finger. And when it kind of turned into a very bright dot, but at that point, we'd sort of uh, stuck our heads down a bit. But uh, he was obviously having a go at us. Uh, so we reported him. I don't Does know it kind that. of light up the whole cockpit? This one didn't because uh, we were reasonably high, so we we're about mm-hmm. uh, six, seven thousand feet. Uh, but they, they, the really powerful ones can go, uh, you know, ten miles, so it's not really a problem. It's very clear, but mm-hmm. um, very quickly he drip, drifted below the nose, so he wouldn't have been able to angle it into our windshield. So that was okay. Uh, and whether they call him or not, I have no idea. But I gave our traffic his position, so you didn't really get any. Damage no, to no, 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 no damage to my, to my eye. Oh, don't don't I, don't, I don't have to wear a patch anymore. So that, no, it's fine. I, I was, think you're uh, disappointed by that, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> well, I could have had a month off, couldn't I? <laughs> like Colonel you, Jeff. You I missed have... your opportunity to yeah, I did, do an entire I? show with an eye patch on <laughs> and, and gather some sympathy. Yeah, yeah um, I know. I know. You blew it. Thank you. you blew it. Uh, life's a so-and-so and then you die. Um. <laughs> Well, let's hear from Steph first, because I think you're going to tell us a little bit more about uh, your visit to Washington, D.C., or the uh, surrounding area, right, Nick? Yeah, he's taking a swig of something right now. Uh, um, most certainly. So uh, let's yes. uh, let's get caught up with uh, Dr. Steph. Uh, how have you been? I have been well. Um, let's see. I'm trying to think what – I can't remember what day we did the show last week. Was it early in the week? Is that why I'm having hmm. memory difficulty? I don't know. I, don't Tuesday, I think it was early in the week. Okay. Yeah. So, um, well, over the weekend, I did get a little bit of flying in, so that was nice and fun. I think I did a very, very short uh, crew log just to test out how well that works. And aside from the audio yeah. actually being very quiet when I thought it would be kind of noisy, um, seemed to work okay. So I'll do more of those in the future. Um, but just a little hour, hour and 20 minute flight, um, just a little cross country to get some flying time in in a 172. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, kind of an overcast day, um, but high-ish ceiling, so no problem. Just going down about 40 nautical miles away and coming back. Windy um, or was You know, it, it, was, it was dead calm here by my house and at my local airport. Um, the winds on, that were being reported at um, the airport that I went to said four knots and kind of a direct crosswind. However, the airport was kind of shielded by um, some high pine trees all the way around. And right above that, it was actually much windier. So it was, it was kind of a fun uh, challenge coming in. Not, not anything terrible, but just not quite as advertised. So, uh, But yeah, all in all, a nice flight. And hopefully going out again this weekend for a little bit of flying, too. 
so we shall see. But nice. Well, I hope that you'll uh, record something again. That was uh, that was nice. Yeah, I'll try and try and do that. And um, other than that, just been you know the usual working. Um, I have a meeting to go to this evening, so unfortunately, I'm going to have to leave a little bit early today. So my apologies in advance. Uh, but I'll try and stick around for as long as I can. Excellent. Okay. Well, very, very good. And then uh, Captain Nick, as I alluded to um, just a minute or two ago, uh, you had a layover at Washington Dulles International and nearby anyway, and you visited the Udver Hazy uh, Smithsonian. No, National. no, I went to the very hazy museum. Oh, yeah. that's a different one. I think it might be. Yeah, yeah. Did you did did they charge you any uh, admission fee? And no, no. It? But they they charged my poor uh, Robert who came to pick me up from the hotel and driver. They charged him fifteen bucks to park his car, which I thought was a bit rude. But uh, no, no. It's uh, very inexpensive for the very hazy museum. So I thought maybe you had gone the, to the uh, other places like a shack that's not really the Udver Hazy Center, but it's something entirely different. No, okay. no, no, it's definitely not a shack. It was a very okay. impressive museum. Now, I was uh, on a, on a, a two-nighter to Washington, uh, which was my line check. Eventually, I've got that, that line check out of the way. Um, and on the, our spare day there, uh, which is always nice to have. It doesn't happen very often in uh, Washington. So, you know, you usually get a few hours on the second day just to do something in the morning, and then you've got to get some sleep and uh, check out. But I had the whole day to kill, which is great. So uh, very, very kindly, Robert Fairburn, uh, first of all, he invited me to his Burns Night because uh, he's, he's not terribly Scottish himself in that he sounds very American, but he has a huge uh, Scottish ancestry. And um, he's actually sent me a book about his uh, grandfather, who I must um, – take care to read that because he, uh, he the stories he's telling me are brilliant brilliant about his uh, his family um so um he picked me up from the hotel and drove me out there we uh, met um tuba tony who uh, is a, a u.s navy a tuba player a musician he wasn't able to stay very long but uh, he, he walked around with us uh, for a while uh, so he's not on the recording, but uh, great to see you, uh, Tony. Um, Juan, um, who is an Acme Scarebus first officer, he uh, came and joined us. Joined us, um, and um, of course we had the lovely Rebecca, um, who a sweet lady, and uh, had some news, but I wasn't. She wasn't allowed to tell us what, but uh, it involves um, a- aviation, and um, uh, she will and hope in the future be able to uh, reveal all but we'll have to wait and see uh and afterwards we uh went across to adams morgan and uh went to uh the smoke and barrel bar uh where um uh, just uh, myself uh, robert uh met up with daniel goodwin who was uh a chap i met uh, in chichester at a pub on a, a small uh, meetup in the uk who he, he, Young but very keen um, chap who is looking to find his way into into aviation and hopefully become a pilot eventually. He's currently on an internship in D.C. uh, working with the Airports Council International um, and uh, doing a lot of good work with them. Uh, He finds it fascinating, really enjoying being in D.C. for uh, uh, a year or two and um he was uh, you know very nice bloke to uh, to meet and say hello to we had some good beers there so but all in all the uh, the whole idea was to go around the Udvahezi 
uh, which I hadn't seen before. I'd been to the one in town, you know, the air and space, but this was just brilliant. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Fantastic museum, great exhibits, and it was super going around with someone like Robert, who's been around there many times, because whenever it looked like I was going to walk past something that might on the surface seem a little insignificant, he would pull me up and said, um, oh, you see through there, that Aero Commander, uh, that's Bob Hoover's. You know, that's the the one he did all his arrows in. And little things like that. So there was a little 172 hanging from the ceiling that had been the one that had been flown by a lady around the world in 28 days. And, you know, I'm going, wow, it's brilliant. So he knew all the little bits and bobs that were worth stopping and looking at the plaques, so, which made the whole thing fantastic. But what a great museum. I thoroughly me enjoyed it. Oh, I wish you'd uh, recorded something, some audio or something from the... Uh... Oh, damn, yeah, if only I'd done that. Oh, wait a minute. I have something here that says Udverhazi Meetup. Ah. Oh, Shall well, I play that? Be... Yeah, let's do that instead. Let's see what that is. Hi, everybody. It's uh, Captain Nick here, and uh, sitting at Dallas Airport, uh, right uh, in the observation lounge, like an air traffic control tower, live looking... Uh, the airport, because uh, we're in the uh, Smithsonian, the Air and Space uh, Museum here at Dallas. And uh, Robert has been showing me around, although as soon as I pulled out my microphone, I noticed he made a quick escape. But uh, Rebecca's here. Rebecca, are you going to tell us your good news? No. <laughs> Go on. Is it, is it not for public release yet? No, no, no. No, no news. No news, no news. All right, well, I'm the secret uh, holder of good news for Rebecca, but she will have to tell us in her own way uh, when she feels happy to. But uh, we've had a quick look around the museum. What, what, do you, what do you think? Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah? Yes, it's the happy place right here, the observation deck. Uh, it is, it is. But out of the exhibits downstairs, and I know you've seen them before, what's your favorite? Oh, no, don't put me on the spot, the space shuttle. Oh, it is. It is good, isn't it? It's, it's, it's a one and only, quite honestly. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, now, okay, here we go. British Airways 747. British Airways 747? Yep, and Where's that come from, do you know? London Heathrow. Excellent. This is Scott. He's, uh, he's our host today up here in the tower, and uh, he's pointing out everything that's landing. So, quite right, there's some ancient old Boeing staggering downwind. Well, that's actually a... That's a very new Boeing 747 as they go. You mean Boeing actually make new airplanes? I thought they were all just old-fashioned. No. That's a very political thing. <laughs> we've, had, we've had 787s in here a short time ago, and that's the newest thing flying, except actually newer than, I don't know about the 380. I think it's newer than the 380. How about the 350, though? We get a few of those. We haven't seen any of the new ones. Oh, but that's newer than the 7-8, shall I? Right, but we haven't seen any of the... All right, okay. But a great spot. It's a beautiful place up here. It is. And a great museum. Okay, yep. Excellent. Of course. Right now, uh, Scott's done... Uh, Scott's one of the hosts here. He's done his thing. Very nice of him to spend a bit of time. So the man who's been showing me around the place, who says he's been here about 15 times and commonly shows idiots like me around this place, uh, is Robert. Robert, how's it going? It's been great. How are you? I'm absolutely fantastic. Now, thank you very much indeed for your time showing me around. And uh, I'm going to ask you the same question. Out of all the exhibits there are below, and there's some brilliant ones, which is your favorite and which is the most interesting? I think maybe the most interesting is the Enola Gay. Uh, it's 
sobering and uh, pretty significant thing to be looking at. I think my favorite is probably the space shuttle just because it's so shocking. And to see it in person, it's a little different than you always expect it to be. Absolutely. To uh, almost be able to reach up and touch something that's been uh, in or out of space and done such a great job. Um, There are some brilliant exhibits out downstairs and that we can see here that you will find nowhere else in the world. Uh, Can you think of a few that uh, people might want to be interested to come and see? Some of the stuff that I think kind of flies under the radar, uh, I mentioned to you earlier, Bob Hoover's aircraft being here, that he did so many air shows in, and um, also a lot of the pioneering test aircraft, the original 707 test bed, and, and then a couple of Goddard's original rockets are pretty cool to see in person. Absolutely, I'll go along with that. I've had my eyes opened, it's been brilliant. Uh, we've, uh, we're currently watching a, uh, an old Boeing uh, clatter his way downwind. Uh, that's British Airways. We're just waiting to see if it makes it to the runway intact, uh, which would be something of a feat for, uh, for them. But we'll see how it goes. Uh, the other person, I'm, oh, uh, anything else you'd like to add? Oh, I'm good. I think it's been a good day. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks very much. And we're looking forward to swearing, uh, swearing, to sharing uh, a beer together. Exactly right. Now, now here's one. Uh, He works for an airline uh, not unsimilar to Acme. Yeah, very uh, lucky you came down today. Thanks for uh, letting me join. Such a pretty day to watch airplanes come in. And uh, this is my first time at the museum, even though I live only 25 uh, miles north of here. Isn't that often the way that the the local sites you rarely come out to see? You'll go miles for something else, though. Yeah, I've been to the. Yeah, it's true. I'll go out of my way on an overnight to go see a lot of these things. But uh, yeah, I couldn't talk uh, anybody else into coming down. Usually, coming all the way down here, especially when you have the nice museum downtown as well. Absolutely. Now uh, I've asked the other two. What's your favorite exhibit here? Oh man, um, I really like the Concorde. That was really cool. You know, it's uh, I'd never seen. Um, the one up, I think it's up in New York is another one, or uh, there's another one I think somewhere in the, in the Caribbean, but that was really cool for me. I thought it was really neat. It is. It's only a shame it's in Air France colors, but never <laughs> mind. Um, so that's, uh, I didn't actually spot which airframe it was, but that's great. And um, which is the most thought-provoking exhibit, you think? Oh, all the space stuff. I mean, that's, uh, I know nothing about that. So that was really cool going through um, that whole exhibit, especially seeing the, the discovery there. So that was probably my... Um, one made me think the most. Yeah. And an awe-inspiring sight. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. We're off to go find some IPA. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I don't think that old 74 has got any closer to the airport. God, it's slow. Uh, I'm going to leave you to it, everybody, um, and uh, pass it back to Jeff. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Nick, for doing that wonderful recording. Some of the folks in the chat room were asking, what technology did you use to record that? Oh, well, that was just uh, an ATR2100. I say just. It's the microphone that you recommended for this kind of thing, and it does work very well uh, on an XLR connection into uh, my Zoom H5. Lucky guess uh, on my part. (laughs) Well done, sir. Yeah, it worked very well indeed. (laughs) So uh, having said that, it's a nice quiet environment up there in that town. I mean, it was was a beautiful day by the time uh, we got up there. It was forecast to be pretty overcast, perhaps a little bit of rain and snow, but there was clear blue sky. Excellent viz uh, and uh, sunshine, and we're looking right out of the airport. Uh, and we would probably spend 45 minutes up there just chatting and, and watching airplanes and things. It was great fun. Well, we're all dying to know did the 747 ever make it to landing touchdown? 
Yeah, he, he made it and more because, I mean, the amount of smoke he kicked up when he landed, I mean, it was like we'd had a little patch of fog suddenly appear on the runway. So uh, I felt a bit sorry for the poor Airbus that came after him because he would have laughed to land in these huge ruts that this old 747, the guy said it was a new one, but they look, all looked like they were built in 1933. Um, I yeah. loved his response. Just no. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm not going to play your game. <laughs> no, no, he, he definitely Just, wasn't. I mean, he you know, was up there actually pen. with a bunch yeah. of uh, Japanese tourists. Uh, he was guiding them around the place. So, and the fact he was just like talking over me. So I thought, well, rather than just try and carry on this interview with him talking, I'll just engage him. And then he'll, and, and it worked perfectly because he then walked away and took his tourists somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> let's come on, folks. Let's get away from this old bearded yeah, man. There's a crazy person over microphone. here with a microphone. We need to leave now. <laughs> but you could tell he was There's so many other parts patient. of the museum to see. Let's carry on. We're <laughs> yeah. walking, we're walking. Nothing to yeah, see. Yeah, it was fun. But I mean, uh, the bits that I thoroughly enjoyed, I mean, for a start, you walk in there and you're a slightly elevated area and in front of you are just a vast collection in just one huge room of aircraft and then smack in front of you just lined up with your eye line is an SR-71. I mean, it's just, it's all beautifully uh, lit with spotlights on its, on its matte black finish. Looks superb. And then immediately behind it in the next building, but you can see through the adjoining corridor, is the space shuttle. And they're perfectly lined up. The SR-71 in front, then this vast space shuttle behind. And then, of course, you start looking around, and just there are aircraft everywhere. They're suspended. They're on the floor. There are beautifully shiny ones that have been polished with an inch in their life, and they're ones that look like they've just been dragged out of a muddy field at the end of World War II and dragged straight into the museum and dumped there. Auth absolutely authentic. There was a, a seaplane from uh, Pearl Harbor that still looked like, I mean, it looked like it had just come out there yesterday, full uh, of rips and tears and bullet holes and all this kind of stuff, uh, you know, and just positioned as it was. And, and you, you get this huge sense of history when you see an aircraft like that. And on the other hand, you see all these beautifully reconditioned ones as well that uh, look as good as they would, in fact, probably better than when they came off the factory floor. So I just think it's a stunning place, absolutely stunning. A lot of uh, uh, every aircraft has a real story behind it. They don't just stick an airplane in because here's an example of an airplane only gets there is if it was an airplane uh, of a particular type and it did something special. So you've, you've really got to uh, be careful not to just walk past something thinking, oh, that's a funny looking thing, and but without realizing exactly why it's there. Yeah, I'd like to go back. We were there, what, two or three years ago, yes. uh, Steph? Three years ago now. Three years ago. Wow. Time flies, crazy? doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Mm. I'd like Definitely to go back, to go though, back. because I kind of felt like, you know, we really didn't have a lot of time to uh, check Yeah, it was kind out. of a, a quick day, but yeah, you yeah. need, you, you could probably even do more than that but yeah yeah well at least a, uh, at least a robert day. uh who's in the chat room now uh, 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 as hamish t haggis oh um, okay he uh he he's very knowledgeable extremely knowledgeable can you understand him with that thick uh, scottish accent <laughs> just and just uh but um yeah so he he was a, a perfect uh guide to mm -hmm. show us around. We were there for like five and a half hours and uh, wow. it, the time just flew. I, I you know, it really wasn't uh, a problem. It was brilliant. A thoroughly good day. 
Yeah, to that one. I've been, to, obviously, to the one in town. Because normally on a one day, you haven't got time to get out all the way out back to the airport and then all the way. Because our hotel's um, uh, up near the zoo, which is you know, on the other side of D.C. So it's a good 45-minute um, drive or an hour's drive, depending on if you're a bus or not. If you're trying to do it public transport, it takes forever. Well, speaking of meetups, um, need to tell you if you're in the Kansas City Missouri, Kansas City, Kansas area on the 9th of, wow, this month already. Is it February 1st already? It is February 1st. So that's wow. next Friday? E, I think so. Yeah. Um, does that sound right? Yes, <laughs> it's the 9th that's correct. of February. Thank you. Uh, we were we tried to do this um, last month, but um, my trip kind of got a little messed up and didn't get there in time to really uh, have a have a good meetup. So we decided we'd cancel that one and try it again in February. And so that's what we're going to do. I'm going to be I should be getting in around midday, so I'll have plenty of time, you know, to take my old old man's nap and uh, and you know be suitably you know, rested. Uh, coherent, coherent. <laughs> for, for a meetup and rested. Yes. Uh, so I'm assuming we'll probably do it about the same time, perhaps a little bit earlier, but uh, details uh, about that meetup will be available in Slack. And um, Tom uh, is uh, the one that uh, is, is uh, organizing that again for us. So look forward to seeing you if you're in the Kansas, the greater Kansas city area. Now, Tom, uh, Seagraves is uh, actually in Columbia, Missouri, which is like an hour and a half drive, I think. So you don't have to be that close. You can con come on in and uh, join us for some uh, some good barbecue and aviation talk. So there you go. Uh, again, if you haven't joined Slack yet, listen to Hillel at the end of the show and he'll tell you how to do it. Um, and oh, hey, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Huh? Everywhere what? you no 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 no, oh. no. is it did I miss it? Uh, yes. Easter's yeah. next. Right? Easter. Oh well, I Valentine's got, Day. I got a Christmas gift. Oh, oh. wow! Yeah, I got this package. Actually, I got a, a note from somebody, uh, Mike Cochran, uh, who uh, basically said, uh, apparently, you don't check your uh, PO box very often because I sent something and it was returned. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. Whoops. <laughs> uh oh. So sorry, Mike. Anyway, he said, I'm going to, what's your home address? I'm going to send it there. I went, okay. So I uh, got back from my trip, my last trip, and um, and, I, and I opened up the box here. Let me see. I'm going to see if I can share some photos uh, with you all in the, uh, in the video. Uh, let's see if I can do this. Um, this is the last we see of Jeff. Yeah, it might Goodbye. be actually. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, nice, nice seeing you, Jeff. <laughs> um oh why is my I hangout can't the, rest of the afternoon off yay hey wow <laughs> is your is your hangout um app thing working in your hangout uh, uh no it came hangout up with a message uh, what is it what called the hangout toolbox? toolbox it said someone was you were trying to use the toolbox yeah i'm trying to use it but it's not loading hmm. uh, okay there are other toolbox. ways to to skin this cat mm. nope, and please working. please I'm I'm just kidding. I'm I'm speaking figuratively. I don't like I like cats. I don't I don't skin them. Um, yeah, I, I don't need often. to see any more animals injured today. Thanks. Yes. So. Uh oh. Uh oh. oh. What? What's my taco? No, no, taco's fine. It was a deer, and it wasn't my fault. So, <laughs> but it's word. another story entirely. <laughs> what happened? Wait, Did you whoa. kill a deer? 
No, um, someone else oh, in my dear. neighborhood tried to this morning as I was leaving oh. for work. Well, I stopped oh. for the deer, turned on my flashers, and they continued to drive right past me. And that's when the deer took off and kind of, the deer ran into the side of their car, kind of like bounced off. And there was all this fur, huge noise. The guy never even stopped or lady, who knows, just kept going. Amazing. So and do you have, do you have venison for to I, have dinner Fortunately, tonight? the deer survived or at least. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Initially. Brilliant. Initially. It, it did well it, enough that it ran. It ran back across the road and back into the the woods. So it might be in um, um, concussion protocol now. Though. I think it probably is. It was a pretty probably. big collision, and I'm just amazed that person didn't stop, didn't do anything. You know, uh, and that on that same part of the road, there's plenty of crosswalks where. Okay, so this was six o'clock in the morning, and it was dark. But mm-hmm. during the rest of the day, there's kids. There's we have a lot of retired folks in our neighborhood. We have golfers on golf carts. We have all kinds of stuff. So I just. Shudder to think how they drive the rest of the time, but anyway. Yeah, it, I it see was your sad. picture, Jeff. So, do you see that? Yes. Um, that's the package. After I opened it up, it didn't. It didn't look quite like that <laughs> when it was delivered. Um, but I opened it up, and then after the fact, I thought, oh, I should take a picture of that. So, um, you can see on it, it says Yeti, and I'm thinking, ooh, some kind of a like big snow monster thing. Coolers. Right? Coolers. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's a tumbler. It's a 30-ounce tumbler. And um, when I turn the camera back on, I'll, I'll show you uh, what it looks like. Um, but uh, I'm accepting Yetis for the boat. Are you? Okay. Well, hang on. So um, I got this, um, cool. this note uh, with it. And uh, so let me switch the camera back to me. Oh, I need, no, I see. I picture need like a video Picture within picture engineer. within picture. Oh, yeah. there there goes the picture. <laughs> you want to have a word with Matt about how to do that? Oh, it's a, that's an improvement, Jeff. Yeah, thanks. My little avatar is what you're seeing here. I'm going to yeah, turn on the FaceTime go. camera then, see if that works. Uh, no, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Oh, well, uh, yeah. yeah. It was nice seeing you all. It was all. Nice, nice seeing you. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so just imagine that I'm in, in person on the, on the camera right now. Oh, there um, you are. Yes. Oh, I'm back? You're back. Oh, look yes. at that. Okay. Um, so it says, greetings, Captain Jeff and crew. I just wanted to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a c- congratulations on reaching episode number 300. I apologize for not leaving any feedback lately. However, it appears that your mailbag is full enough. Just wanted to let you know that I'm still a loyal listener and eagerly await to the publishing of each new episode. Not so much has changed with me lately. I'm still flying HEMS, so Helicopter Emergency Medical Services. Is that what that stands for? HEMS? I think so. With the same company, although I'm now located in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and flying a different airframe, the Airbus H-135P2+, which is pictured below. And you're just going to have, oh, I can tell you, I'm going to show you right here in uh, the video there. That's the uh, picture of his new ride. And let's see. um, It looks a lot more sleek than an Airbus does. Like an Airbus airplane? Yes. Yeah. Because this is an Airbus. Good looking. Yeah, it's um, good looking. And he says, and yes, I'm going to have to side with Captain Nick and say I'm an Airbus fan, at mm. least in at mm. least in the rotorcraft world. Yes. Yes. He doesn't need yes. any encouragement. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Mike, thank you. Okay, so if you know, you, you, good job. Good job, Mike. Good job. You know, Nick, when you complain about 747, I'm telling you, they're always looking down on you. Ah, we don't care. I it's mean, all right. Uh, they're looking down on you. Yeah, yeah, it's only because they couldn't figure some way to stick the uh, cockpit at a decent altitude. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, just okay. think, you've got you to climb stairs, you got to work. What's that about? 
Exercise. Oh, that's lazy Cardio. Airbus. That's lazy Airbus pilot talk right there. <laughs> so going on with Mike's letter. Hello. Let's pay attention, people. Sorry. If you all ever find yourselves at Chippewa International Airport, KCIU, I hope your emergency landing was uneventful, as I'm sure you would not be here otherwise. <laughs> further, nice further, one. look me up. There are a few good local breweries in town. Uh, enclosed, you'll find a little Christmas gift as a token of my appreciation for all the hard work and dedication. You have a listener until the very end. And so... Uh, here, here is the uh, the end of the day, and uh, mm. I don't know if you can tell here, but we have uh, oh, airline pilot guy Captain Jeff, Captain Jeff, and look, oh, oh nice it's one. even better. We have, we have uh, yes. coffee, like Candy. uh, candies, like Chocolates. uh, Reese's, Reese's, Reese's cups. yes. And I have to say, I've had some of them already. And I also this is a little foam cover I, I stuck in here, you know, and I put it in my bag, and it, and it smells like Reese's. Peanut Added butter bonus. cups. <laughs> yes. and You're perfuming so, your windshields now. Oh, Jeff. Yes. Uh, so it's going to look like a ravenous. Anyway, savage I'm, dog I'm here shortly. I'm really, I'm, I'm really sad that um, that. Oh, wait a minute. Hang on here. Let me see if I can. Uh, At least you get your Carfax report. Yeah, and I want to know if it actually fits in the coffee cup holder on the aircraft. Well, you're going to be able to find out. Because oh. look at there. Oh, my God. Oh, brilliant. That's awesome. Yeah, um, we're showing a picture now of all four of these Yeti (laughs) 30-ounce things. It says uh, Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, Old Curmudgeon, and Captain Dana. Oh, what a jinx. That's that's jinxing. That's that's awesome. But That's that's like a jinx. I'm not a captain yet. <laughs> I'm scared. Well, you can't have yours until you're actually a captain. Okay, I'll yeah, take it yeah. as a It'll just be yeah. put on we'll layaway. We'll stick it in a museum then. It'll oh, be next the, year's Christmas. By gift. the way, Dana, I have um, a challenge coin for you that uh, was Armando, Armando. that. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, that's brilliant. At the PTUK uh, All right. 200th. Yeah, well, I. Yeah. Uh oh. Okay, I, I'll buy the drinks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Uh, anyway, remind me of that data. I got to get that to you. It has your name on it and everything. So challenge coin, challenge coin. Yeah. It looks like this. If you can see my picture, so oh, these were from that's Armando. That's awesome. Really cool. So, yep. That's okay. Awesome. So, thank you again, Mike, for uh, for doing that. It was a, a very very generous gift to uh, the APG crew. We do appreciate it. We miss hearing from you, but it's good to hear that you're uh, all safe and sound in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. That's all. That's always one of those interesting things. The way they spelled it is S-A-U-L-T-S-T-E period French. Marie. And uh, am I pronouncing it right though? Yes. Is it Sault Ste. Marie? That's okay. how Sault Ste. we pronounce it. That's how we pronounce it. You know, I heard the snowmobiling up there is fantastic. Huh. I love snowmobiling. Maybe Did I hear a... Yeah, yes. Steph, Steph did hers. Okay, wait. <laughs> you got to show some video evidence here, Jeff. Yeah, liar. Yeah. I, I Drinks on much. you. Sorry, yeah. Okay, uh, let's see. Anything else we want to talk about here before? Oh, yeah, one more thing. Um, I 
we have a new member of the uh, APG team uh, helping us out, and uh, she's uh, she's she's brand new. And uh, we just had our first meeting yesterday to talk about kind of what goes on behind the scenes and uh, ways. It's nice that, to get uh, a professional involved at last. Yes, we need. Mm-hmm. I need help. That's for sure. And uh, you may have heard of her. Her name is Liz Piper, Elizabeth Piper, in uh, Toronto. Um, I thought that she'd make a great producer, and uh, so she's going to be uh, helping us out behind the scenes and kind of uh, helping us organize things and pick feedback for the shows and do some of those things that uh, take a lot of my time, and that'll free up some of my time to do some other things. So um, thank you, uh, Liz, for accepting the invitation, and I look forward to working with you in the future. So, yay. Well, Yay. Nice applause there. Oh, here. I, can, I have a little button here I can play. Welcome, Liz. Wow. Congrats. Was that loud for you guys? No, no, that was No, fine. not too bad. Okay. It was very loud in my earbuds. Okay. Sorry. Um, yeah. With that, I guess we can move on to the coffee fund quickly. We'll get that out of the way, and then we'll move on to uh, the little bit of news that we have in the news folder. So... Here we go. Take it away, the Java Jive Coffee Fund Singers. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee, I love tea. I love the Java Jive and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. All right. If you want to support us in a financial way, if you have the resources to do so, you can join the Coffee Fund Cadre, those who have uh, decided to give us some contributions to help uh, support all the costs of doing the show. And since the last episode, uh, the Coffee Fund Classic, we have two ways to do this Coffee Fund Classic via PayPal. Steve Trumbull and Kevin Cole sent us uh, donations using that uh, particular method. And then we also have the Patreon, or you can become a patron via patreon.com, become a producer, in effect, of the show. And since the last episode, we have four, actually five, because one of these is actually two people, uh, new uh, patrons for the show. Uh, The first one, Peter Griffiths. Not Peter Griffin, but Peter Griffiths, Graham Haley. Um, oh yeah, Graham. Um, yeah, had a good time uh, talking with him and uh, visit, visiting with him uh, at the PTUK 200 thing. I just realized I just recognized his name. I went, oh, I know who that is. Um, the podcast that uh, Nick has talked about before, Opposing Bases. It's a brand new show uh, inspired by ours, and uh, they are two pilots and uh, air traffic controllers that do the show, AG and RH. And again, their podcast is Opposing Bases. They became executive producers of the show. Hmm, I wonder if they're going to try to take over. Hmm, Got to be careful about those guys. And finally, Richard Mueller, or Richard Muller, uh, is also a new producer of the show so if you want to join them it's a great group of people head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee you can learn about the uh, different methods to become part of the coffee fund cadre so thank you again for all of your support coffee and tea and the java and me 
Kappa 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 Stand by for news. Okay, our first item in the news bag is me. Dave Abbey made it official. In no. the in, in the in the hangout. What now? I'm no longer gonna be on the show. Oh that's the news of the day. Is it? Okay. Well that's news well, to me. I thought HR um, was supposed to break that. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't we weren't quite ready to go live with that news. Dave Abby. Dave. Just kidding. Yeah. Okay, that's it. Somebody kick him out of the chat room. Over. No, no, it was no. nice knowing you guys. <laughs> to be clear, Dana is going nowhere. He is. Uh, no. And that's and that's what his parents said. <laughs> that's what my mother said. It's going nowhere. Dana. I wish he, I wish you get rid of him. It's my fault. <laughs> okay, no, let's I'm get this kidding. back on track. I was going. What are you talking about? Um, I apologize for whomever sent this do i have that in the uh notes um i think i do uh jake Uh, wheeler there we go he sent in this article about um you know we talked about emotional support animals on the show uh this one uh let's see a female traveler was recently banned from taking a large emotional support peacock on board a united airlines flight She had offered to buy the bird its own plane ticket, according to travel blog Live and Let Fly. Nonetheless, the airline refused to let the bird board at Newark Airport in New Jersey, saying it did not meet guidelines due to its weight and size. Ooh, I didn't know they had guidelines for peacocks. Hmm. Mm. Interesting. Um, I think it's probably spelled out explicitly. Is it? If if customer is buying ticket for peacock, be sure peacock meets said weight. And size a, requirements. Apparently, it, it just must fit in this sizer. <laughs> That's one of those little things where you stick your bag, <laughs> like in, for your baggage, stick yeah. your peacock in. If here. your peacock <laughs> does not fit in, all the way in, you can't uh. can't bring the peacock. <laughs> wow. Yeah. We just go so that. many places with that, can't we? I, I family show, family just, show. <laughs> just take it at face value and move on. <laughs> it's a family show. <laughs> uh, pictures of the striking bird and its owner attempting to travel to Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So the cock was striking out. Uh, yeah, emerged via the Jet Set, a travel-based talk show. The images show the animal perched on the airport baggage trolley as fellow passengers gaze at it in shock. After six hours at the airport, the exotic bird and its human companions decided to take the road and instead drive across the U.S. I would say no. it's one peed off cock peacock. My favorite uh, part of the story is that apparently... This lady called the airline several times before she actually showed up to the airport with the peacock. And on all three separate occasions, they told her she would not be allowed to bring her peacock on the flight. She's not one to take no for an answer. (laughs) She was persistent. (laughs) Nevertheless, she persisted, right? Yes. Yes. But uh, she's actually a um, Brooklyn-based artist uh, who documents... uh, the life of her, I don't know, herself or a peacock on social media. So there wouldn't be any publicity um, angle to this no. event with that. No, oh, never. come never. on. Don't be so skeptical. 
Nick. Oh, okay. Sorry, guys. Of course uh, not. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm a, yeah. Okay. Well, that's one of the items we have. It's a very slow news week. <laughs> so, yeah. The other. We're leading with that one. That one was... We're leading with that one. That just tells you something right there. Uh, and the other item that we have in the news bag is uh, at least 60 airplanes to do Super Bowl shuffle to St. Cloud runways. Now, St. Cloud is a. A private air or a, a smaller general aviation type of airport close to um, the uh, the big uh, Minneapolis St. Paul International uh, Airport. That, I just assumed these were all Boeing's and they had to have a few spares for the ones that broke. Nope, you're wrong. Oh, okay. These are uh, going to be several, approximately 70 to 90 uh, airplanes, very expensive business jets. Ooh coming in because the Super Bowl is kind of a big thing here in the U.S. And uh, this year, the uh, city of Minneapolis is sponsoring the uh, or holding the uh, Super Bowl. And St. Cloud just happens to be, I guess, the closest uh, place for these uh, expensive biz jets to fly in and park overnight or, or at least during the day. Anyway, the article goes on to talk about uh, the owner of this FBO and how they are uh, going to fit in this very large number of big airplanes is big for them. They're used to general aviation size airplanes, not big business jets. And probably not that many all at once. So yeah. question of where to park all of them. They kind of have it laid out on the table. They've they've created this map and parking scheme and you know, who's going yeah, to I was going to say, just bring in, uh, bring in consultants from Augusta, Georgia, when the Masters is going on. Pretty much every corporate jet in the world shows up there. That's true. That is true. Or, or go to um, uh, Oshkosh. Oshkosh. They, they, yeah, would, Oshkosh. They, they know a thing or two about fitting a whole bunch of airplanes into a small space. Yeah. Have but any of I... you, have you ever, speaking of that, have any of you flown into Oshkosh before? No. Mm-mm. I have twice. It's yeah. quite an adventure. Yeah, we've had uh, it, people give us send feedback and YouTube videos and the whole bit about uh, about their experience doing that. Um, it's an amazing feat how well they do that mm-hmm. operation. Not to diverge off the topic, but it's uh, if if you get that same type of operation, uh, you know, going up in St. Cloud at minus fourteen degrees up there right now. If you want somebody outside doing that, um, it's 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 an amazing feat that. You have that many airplanes coming in, and they, you know, basically put spots. I don't know if you've ever talked about it before. Mm-hmm. I know we haven't when I've been, but uh, they put spots on the runway, and the GA aircraft are all landing at the same time on the spots. So yes. you're using one runway to land. If you ever five listen aircraft. to our podcast, he knows that we've talked about that a few <laughs> times. Shh. I don't just, like just, you anymore. It's okay. Just, there might be people out there who are just ter- tuning in for the first time yes. who know nothing about Oshkosh. So there you go. So. Oshkosh spots on the runways. <laughs> Colored spots. <laughs> uh, Jeff, I can't listen to every podcast ever. <laughs> That's Your a long way to go to back for me. number one Catholic pilot. Yeah, obviously he doesn't I, I have tried. the- uh, I tried. I tried. you got to catch the APG syndrome. I have the APG syndrome. Hey, so I, I actually, I have a question. Okay. The uh, serious question. Serious the question. title of this article was the airplanes are doing the Super Bowl shuffle. Do you have any, um, do you have a clip of the real Super Bowl shuffle as performed by the 1985 Super Bowl winning Bears Of team? course I do. Steph, doesn't everybody? <laughs> I, I, yeah. No, I, mean, I don't. Being from Chicago originally, obviously. I don't know. Bury the Bears. 
Would that be something that uh, you could find on Not like, enough. Google yeah. or something like that? Yeah, probably. Super Bowl Shuffle. While we're talking about that, I love the sophistication of their um, airport map, which mm -hmm. is a big piece of white paper and all the airplanes, little cardboard cutouts, and how they like having to play jigsaw with them. It's kind of like when you're see. trying to fit the furniture in your living room, you know, yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> That's right. I'd love to see what they've written beside each of these little airplane models because they're little handwritten notes. <laughs> um, perhaps it's the, uh, the seniority or the uh, order of... Uh, famousness of the various I was owners. Say net, net worth maybe well, you know what they said be. in the yep. article that uh they really don't all they know is that uh mostly vips and they really don't know who uh you know who the vips are they're they're usually pretty hush hush about that all right at least that's what they say i wonder if trump's going to show up uh i don't know let's see here let me turn this on and see if we can hear oh good that's not it. No, because it's an ad. Thank you very much. Let me skip the ad. Okay, here we go. Dana will be able to tell us uh, which team. Uh, no? I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> There's too many. There's too many things for me to. Barry, Barry the Bears. Mm -hmm. Our former coach was, uh, I think his first name, I can't forget his first name. His last name was Barry. And we lost our Super Bowl game to the Bears. Oh. Right. Um, Jim McMahon was the quarterback. And right. Perry, Perry, the refrigerator. Oh, was Lyman yeah. that uh, was put as a running back, and uh, I don't know too many people can stop about three hundred and fifty pounds of rumbling blubber coming at you. So uh, yeah, that's uh, I was our first Super Bowl appearance, and we lost. Oh, mm. you've made up for it though. Uh, <laughs> now hopefully, I'm not crying next week. <laughs> Now, I'm just guessing the refrigerator didn't do too many rushes, though. I mean, as a as a running back, you'd have run out of steam fairly quickly, wouldn't he? He would, mm -hmm. but once once you're once you're driving down and you're like on less than the five yard line going going in for a touchdown, it was pretty hard to stop the man. I mean, he just ah, yeah, yeah. You could have about fourteen people hanging on to him. It was only 12, eleven on the field, by the way, and he'd still be running. So. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, amazing. I'm sorry for that that diversion away from oh, that's aviation okay. stuff, we, uh, but we welcome, the Super Bowl is coming coming up we this weekend. Welcome so that diversion. A little no bit of news football anyway. talk. <laughs> that's right. All right. Well, that's uh, enough for our not real news, but uh, whatever. I had to put something in the news folder. <laughs> okay. And uh, that means we can move on to the best part of the show. Captain, incoming message. 
Alrighty, let's see. Let's move over to the uh, episode 309 folder and start with the first one from Adam. He says, and this, uh, I apologize, it's taken so long for me to get to this, Adam. He sent this to us in the early part of December. Um, Captain Jeff, I'll be keeping an eye on your Where is Captain Jeff calendar. By the way, that's one of the pages on the website. Uh, if you come through Tampa sometime in the next year, I'd like to contribute in person to the coffee fund. Yes. I work at TPA on the airport's expansion program, and I've just discovered APG recently. The 300 episodes, most two plus hours are perfect to get me through my day. I've done, I guess he doesn't do a lot of work <laughs> during the day. Um, I've done a little math and at the rate that I listen two to three episodes a week, I'll have enough content to get through another two and a half years of my consultancy position here. I listen to the newest episode available, then cherry pick some older ones that look interesting. I appreciate the effort and time you all put into this endeavor. As someone who has always been interested in aviation, your podcast satisfies more curiosity than you know, even for someone with experience working in aviation every day. Huh, very good. Just for the heck of it, I included a shot of an Antonov that recently stopped by the uh, Tampa International Airport. And he put a picture of it, and uh, we'll put that in the show notes so you can see it as well. It's one of those, I, you know, the one that looks like a, a C5. We call it a C5 ski. Um basically the Russian equivalent of the C5 with the big nose, uh, you know, opened up and kneeling down to accept cargo. First time I saw that, I thought the guy had crashed and that was just all the debris literally all over <laughs> it the It does airfield. kind of look like that. <laughs> oh my gosh, what happened? That's terrible. Yeah, he broke his nose off and there's, there's debris everywhere. So, Adam, uh, great to have uh, another new listener and uh, welcome. And I look forward to uh, meeting with you uh, whenever I have another Tampa layover because I, I really enjoy Tampa. Uh, yeah, sounds a very nice chat. Yep. Um, Glenn sent this. It was actually a tweet from Glenn. I must have captured it. And he said, uh, at APG Crew, which is our, our uh, crew uh, Twitter ID, he says, I never knew this. I guess only in Russia. Would someone, tr someone try this? And then he put this link and I went, try what? And uh, so the link that he sent to us was, I guess somebody else tweeted this. Um, it's a WTF facts. I guess WTF stands for what the fudge? <laughs> um, in 1986, a Soviet pilot made a bet with his co-pilot that he could land the airplane blind with curtained cockpit windows. He crashed the plane into the landing strip, killing 70 of 94 passengers and crew. Way to go. Yeah, nice good job. job. <laughs> I wonder if he's still in jail. That's a Darwin Award. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Well, I think you got to kill yourself, though, don't you? Maybe he survived it. I don't know. Maybe he killed I himself. Was, no, I was just reading the uh, Wikipedia entry on this particular oh, incident. Tell us more about it. Uh, oh. Well, I'll just I'll just read the crash summary because it's not terribly lengthy. Okay. Uh, it says, while approaching this airport in Russia that I can't pronounce, um, the pilot, both neither of which uh, I can't pronounce either of their names. One of the pilots I'll made try, it with the other one. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and Zirnov, I have no idea, um, could make an instrument-only approach with a curtain cockpit window, thus having no visual contact with the ground, instead of an NDB approach, which was suggested by air traffic control. 
They ignored ground proximity warnings at an altitude of 62 to 65 meters and did not make the suggested go-around. So the aircraft touched down at a speed of 150 knots and came to rest upside down. 63 people died during the accident and seven more in hospitals later. Uh, 14 children um, survived. And uh, let's see. I was trying to see. What kind of airplane was it? It was a TU-134A. So, Aeroflot. Yeah, two bluff. Is that, a, is that a jet or is that one of their props? I'm not sure. I'm not familiar. No, it's a jet. A jet? It's a jet. jet. Brilliant. And it says, even though, so the, um, the co-pilot who, let's see, so it was, I'm not sure which pilot was which, but the pilot who made the bet, it doesn't say anything of, oh yeah, he, they both survived. Well, initially, uh, the one who made the bet initially was prosecuted, sentenced to 15 years in prison, later reduced to six years served. And the other pilot uh, died on the way to the hospital of cardiac arrest. Oh man! After he subsequently tried to save some passengers. So wow, that's sad. And that too was in little, 1986, October 20th, for those who are asking. Huh. So I don't remember. And the TU-134 looked a bit like a mad dog. A dog, a little oh. bit yep. with a pointy um, pod at the top of the tail. Um, it's got a, it's, it's T-tail, it's uh, two rear mounted, uh, engines, mm -hmm. uh, low wing, sweat back, uh, pointy yeah, front end, about the same size, perhaps a little bit smaller. And, you know, Dana and I do this kind of thing all the time, you know, make these kind of bets and, you know, take the curtain. Oh, wait a minute. We don't have any curtains. We need to get curtains. <laughs> you just do it with your eyes closed. <laughs> we need to get a curtain. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, thanks Glenn yeah. for that. Yeah, I'm. I'm just. It's got to be a suitable comment to say about idiots like that. But I just can't think of one derogatory enough. I. I don't think there is one. Yeah. So. I don't think so. I just want to know why I would have a glass enclosure in the nose. Navigating, maybe. Uh, Navigation. The bomb hammer. <laughs> it's dual no, use. No, seriously. Uh, oh. in that era, almost all their civil aircraft had bomb hammers positions in the front, so oh. that they could. At almost the flick of a switch, turn all their civil airliners into a military uh, aircraft. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. Mm. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Just pulled up a picture of it. That is interesting. Hmm. All right. Well, we learn something new every day. And sometimes we learn things that we don't really want to know about. Thank you, Glenn. Um, Jake sent this in. He says, hello, everyone. Loving the show as always. Jake from Brighton in the UK here. Just a quick follow up to the 747 handling talk from last week. If some listeners thought that that was hard work, watch this 747 pilot wrestle all the way to touchdown. So we have another um, YouTube video uh, with somebody that has a camera on the pilot, in this case, the captain. Uh, wrestling with the control yoke uh, and trying to land an airplane. And I forgot exactly. I, I do remember watching it, but I don't remember the exact circumstances, but it did look like he uh, had quite a handful. And I think it was quite windy, if I recall. But um, it also looks like he's listening to his iPod. It does. It does. <laughs> he's got a pair of like Apple <laughs> headphones and his final countdown. <laughs> okay. Overlay that with like 50, 40, 30, right? Yeah, that's it. the final countdown. All right. I mean, I have to say, when we talked about this last time, there's no doubt about it. You have to move a uh, yoke uh, further than you obviously do a little uh, control stick. 
Um, so, you know, it, making the same adjustments require a lot more physical movement and effort. And what can look as if it's being fraught and, you know, a huge amount of heaving and pulling and tugging. Those Boeing guys love tugging. Um, who doesn't? Then, um, <laughs> then I, I, I would guess, I don't know, uh, Jeff, you, you, have you watched yourself do this? So, yeah, in, since in we've wind? been talking about this, I, I'm actually paying more close attention to that kind of thing. And I'm going, dang, <laughs> I'm really moving this thing a lot. <laughs> even, when it, <laughs> even when it feels relatively smooth and you're, you're making all these tiny really, you know, tiny adjustments in the, you know, with the, with the flight controls to keep the airplane. If you're sitting in the back, you just feel like it's just on a rail or something similar to it. Uh, but up front, <laughs> we're, we're really working hard, you know, moving that thing around to, uh, to keep, uh, the, the jet, uh, in the trage trajectory of the path, uh, vertical and horizontal to, uh, get right to that precise spot on the runway and uh, and you just don't unless somebody calls attention to it like uh do you uh like when you're when you're golfing and you uh are swinging or putting are you breathing or are you holding your breath you know you don't really pay attention to that until somebody asks you know or or gives you some reason to start paying attention to it and uh yeah there's a lot of movement there and then when it when it's a situation where you have like a really strong gusty crosswind it's just amplified even more yeah, constant movement. Um, and and interestingly, I, I don't. I, I guess I need to find a video of um, the same type of thing uh, with the side stick controller uh, version of this kind of thing. And I was always, as I think I mentioned before, I was always amazed at how much that side stick controller was actually moving when you guys are hand flying it coming in for an approach. I guess the difference is that uh, the the Airbus computers probably say, uh, yeah, 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 we don't need to do that. No, we're not going to really do that. We're, we're just going to take that as a suggestion. Too, too much, too much, no, we're, too much. Yeah, <laughs> it's way too much. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Not having had the experience myself, but. Uh, Love being a vote in the cockpit. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, uh, I guess, you know, the, the fly by wire, um, Boeing's kind of the same thing, right? Um, you're still inputting information, but the computers are kind of going, mm, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. I, you know, I don't, that's a good, very good question. I don't know if there is a computer that actually calculates all the variables that the Airbus does on the Boeing. I'm not because, sure. Because, you, you know, you, basically with Boeing, you're moving the controls that which is sending an electronic signal to the actuators. I don't know that it goes to the computer system like it does on the Airbus, which the Airbus, if it doesn't. Like Every fly-by-wire system goes via a computer, Dana. So you're feeding inputs to a computer. The computer is passing them on. Now, what? Uh, how Boeing massage its flight laws? Uh, I don't know, but I think you'll probably find they're not that dissimilar. Yeah, I think they're they're closer. They're they're more similar than they are dissimilar. I think hmm. of the fly-by-wire versions. Of course, you know the yeah, seven four I mean, and the. Well, I guess the uh, the newest seven forty seven is a fly-by-wire, right? But uh, all the previous ones were more conventional. Um, you know, and of course, triple seven. Every is, uh, every fighter pilot nowadays in a modern fly-by-wire aircraft yeah. is doing exactly the same. Yep, yeah. because most of the modern fighters out there today, if if you didn't have a computer system to do that, uh, the airplane would be uncontrollable because it's yeah, essentially right. a lot of them are dynamically unstable. Yeah, unstable. You know, I have uh, I do have uh, a friend of mine that has taught the 737 for 10 years and now is an Airbus instructor for the last three or four years. 
I'm going to see if he's available for that question because that's a good one. Yeah, I'm another seven three would yeah, be conventional. We, yeah, no, and the NG. No, even the uh, every version mm-hmm. of the uh, seven three yeah. I think is still conventional. Don't forget, There's no seven three seven is a 1950s airplane yeah. just with a new coat of paint. Yeah, the, even the brand new ones, the Max, I think that's still conventional. There's, it's not fly by wire, uh, but the triple seven, the seven eighty seven, and I think maybe. The uh, the latest version of the seven forty seven, the eight, uh, is fly by wire. I think. Don't don't send me email if I'm wrong. <laughs> send some feedback and tell me I'm wrong. Um, well, you know, speaking of you know Airbuses and Boeing's, and I, I, I titled this piece of feedback by Alex Boeing hater, and you'll see why here in a second. Uh, Alex writes. Uh, New Year, so thought would send some feedback and questions from my passenger experiences from last year. Question one, pilot seats. I've noticed that on Boeing aircraft, the pilot seat generally has a sheepskin cover and on an Airbus not. Is that an option the airline decides or pilots? What's your preference? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I have, I've flown mad dogs that have sheepskin covers on the seats and I've most of them don't. Um, and honestly, I really, I'm not sure I could really tell a difference if I was blindfolded. What about you, Dana? It, it's an option, I think. Yeah. Sorry, I, Dana. I, actually, I can, when you sit down, it feels a little bit more plush. I mean, yeah. the, uh, the, the old covers are kind of, you know, just very hard and very rigid. Mm-hmm. Whereas the, the, um, lambskin covers have a little plushness to them. I can definitely tell when I'm sitting in one. Well, he has a it's, more it's sensitive a bum than I have. Well, it's just and more comfortable. Yeah. I was just thinking maybe it's, you know, uh, just covering up where there's like tears in the fabric or if the seat's a little worn, you just slap on the sheepskin cover and get to go. Or, or somebody left a stain. A stain. Yeah. No, we no don't really want to know that. about that. So you, so we uh, we have a few on our fleet, Airbus fleet, with uh, sheepskin covers, the majority not. They've got the standard... Airbus grey and blue stripe. Um, but uh, uh, when I was with the Aussies in uh, Australia on the F-18, they had sheepskin cover on their uh, F-18 seats. Uh, and it's brilliant in a hot climate because uh, uh, it actually gives you that little bit of trapped air between you and the seat and stops uh, you getting quite so sweaty. So uh, it was brilliant. Hmm. Uh, but the trouble with the sheepskin cover is, uh, you know, some guys are messy eaters. And before long, you'll find uh, you know caked chocolate in the on the seat pan, and you're trying to climb. You're looking to climb into this seat, and it looks manky and covered in grot, and you're really going, ah, oh, no, oh, hang I on, I'm gonna write climb. these down. Manky and covered with <laughs> grot. <laughs> what language are you using again? I yeah, it's old English. <laughs> old English. Yeah. I learned so much yes. from you. <laughs> I love yeah. it, actually. Uh, so, I mean, can uh, I, yeah. can I talk rank, ranking grot about the RJ? Sure. Seat covers? Because I'll, uh, <laughs> I got to be honest, I have never seen that, this at, at Acme mainline, but at uh, when I was flying the RJs, I got to tell you what, those seat covers weren't very good because after a while, after the new airplanes had been used for a while, the this may be this well it is disgusting frankly there was a brown stripe in the middle of the seat 
Yeah, light brown stripe. Mm. It was, you know, you get a nice white cover and a nice brown stripe. I, I, <laughs> it was disgusting. Frankly, disgusting. I don't know if anybody It was just a coffee did. spill, that's all. Don't worry yeah, about it. Yeah, sure. It just, yeah, it, it's it, I don't know if chocolate. any- I don't know if anybody else listening to this, the Flies RJs, has noticed that, but I know at my former, it was it was just disgusting. <laughs> well, somebody just scared the something out of them, I guess. Uh, and it just wasn't one airplane. It was oh. just about any aircraft that had been there for a long time mm-hmm. was just hmm. whatever. Oh, right. I don't need to digress anymore. <laughs> yeah, I tell you what, it, it is one of my pet hates, though, when guys uh, climb out of the cockpit, they make no effort to tidy up after them. I mean, when you climb in, you're, you're getting into a cockpit. The, the cleaners won't uh, do a lot in there because they're, they're terrified of getting their their standard cleaning gear anywhere near the instruments, uh, et cetera, because they could do a lot of damage. So uh, there's very little done. And if you see coffee cups and old uh, um, water bottles and food debris everywhere, mm. And I mean, it's just a That's mess, and it really it upsets me exactly to try to spend the first ten minutes tidying up after the last guys, and then brushing the seats down, and eventually making it acceptable to, as a working environment. Uh, My so. favorite. If any of you guys are listening, pull your finger out hey, and clean the damn thing up. When people you get listen out. to the show, aren't the aren't guilty of that? I'm sure. <laughs> what, I, what I love. No, no, we only have the neatest, most polite. Yes, considerate. Listeners. What I love is the uh, yeah. the little water bottles we have, which are much smaller than the one I have here. Um, you know, little plastic water bottles, Dasanti or whatever they, whatever uh, the ones on, in between the rudder pedals. Yeah. Well, you know, like when you get there and you <laughs> grab it and you go to open it up and you realize that you know, like it's only one third full, and you know somebody left their uh, used uh, bottle yeah. for you. Oh, how nice, how considerate. Yeah, and as you said, the same thing. The trash can they didn't didn't bother. You know, cleaning up the trash and taking the trash can out. You know, Dana talked about that earlier where he was handing the trash can because Dana knows how to keep a cockpit clean. Well, you know, it, it's funny you should say that because one of my friends that I helped from ASA and wrote him a letter of recommendation, I took an airplane from him and I want to say it was probably Louisville, Kentucky or somewhere around there. Uh, he just flown it in. He was going the overnight and I took it from him and I get in the flight deck and there's a gray bag there full of trash. And it was, you know, maybe you know, it was only one leg's worth of flight plan and coffee cups. It wasn't very much in there. And so I texted him. I said to him, so since when did I ever tell you to leave trash in here? And he said, oh, no, there's very little. So I left it there. And I said, no, you don't get it. Empty your trash out of the cockpit. Gone. I don't want it in the car. Don't leave your Dana, trash. Dana, Dana, you don't understand. He was going green. We're going green. <laughs> We're going green. We're gonna take yeah. care of the earth. We're going and, you know, green. Nick, you mentioned you know all the controls, right? How often you are you in the uh, Jeff in, in the in the in the crew lounge, and you go use the restroom, and you see guys come out of there that go to the restroom. And don't use the water and soap to wash your hands. Next thing you know, oh, let's not go there. Let's not go there. Yeah, exactly. Right. But having said that, I have been with some lovely first officers, and you, you see them, they get straight on the flight deck, out come a whole bunch of biological wipes, and they're going over all the controls, wiping all the, the, uh, the throttles off, and making sure everything's pristine, and they're doing the microphones and things. And I'm thinking, 
that is real nice. In fact, one guy would even take out a um, a paintbrush, a little soft uh, paintbrush, and dust off all the uh, screens so that they all, there was no dust on them to reflect the sunlight. Fingerprints where people actually like reach forward and yeah, touch the and screens that, that for is some unknown reason. of mine. Why, why do you have to t- put your finger on the damn screen to point at it? Idiot. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Steph, for getting him started spe- on that. Speaking of well, all this stuff. Well, I just this, know how much, people, <laughs> how much pilots really love that. Speaking so. of all this stuff, I have a very interesting question for you. You do? I yeah. thought of Ooh. it, yes. Okay. And so the TSA gave me something that uh, that they I'm sorry, gave. was it? <laughs> yeah, no, they were they were nice. They gave okay. a little Was like, it a cavity inspection size. that they gave you? Um, yes, a body cavity inspection <laughs> with no gloves. Uh, so, no, they gave me a little pen-sized uh, little spray thing that you can stick in your shirt pocket that has iso- has rubbing alcohol and some aloe in it, whatever else. So, I've been refilling it and putting isopropyl rubbing alcohol because I always spray my hands in the flight deck for obvious reasons we've been talking about. And I was starting to think about that, though. Our skin absorbs anything that's our hands that are put on it. Would that show up on a alcohol test? I, if so, I'm spraying isopropyl alcohol, seventy well, percent on my hands. Spraying your tongue Un- for a start. It's not a breath right. fresh. No, no, <laughs> Un- unlikely. I mean, I don't think you're going to absorb enough through your skin to make any uh, dent in your blood alcohol content with rubbing alcohol just for your skin. Most of it's going to evaporate when it hits your skin because it, it evaporates very quickly. Um, uh, no, I, I don't think that's going to be an issue. The bit, I, <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned that though, because I think I've told this story here before. But the one time I was pulled aside by TSA um, was because I, you know, go through the metal detector or whatever. You get random screening, no big deal. They go over, they uh, swab off your hands to see if you have any residue of suspicious things on your hands, and it alarmed and came back positive. And I went, oh, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, but they did tell so. Uh, backstory is that morning I was doing a cadaver lab for a workshop that I was attending in Chicago. Definitely washed my hands afterwards, but we were kind of in a hotel conference center environment. And they said sometimes the the cheap soaps with different glycerin content to them will alarm false positives. So something to, to think about. So even if you've cleaned your hands appropriately, um, not that it's a, a blood alcohol content problem, but just for the the bomb the residue, bomb residue thing. detection yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah I, I can just imagine sitting there in the flight deck, and I just spray my my hands, and passenger walks by and says, "I smell alcohol." Yeah, but that's there's a difference between isopropyl alcohol. No, yeah, and there, there's a there's a big difference alcohol. there. There, it's not gonna, sure. it's not which gonna come back positive. Which is better drink? Yes, the ethyl, <laughs> <Don't>, <laughs> not the isopropyl. Don't drink that one, <laughs> unless you want to be blind. Yeah, so. if you like being <laughs> no, well, I think Nick might be halfway there, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, I know we're in the midst of uh, this particular piece of feedback by Alex, um, and he has a couple of more questions here. But before we answer the rest of his feedback, I would like to um, play something, some audio feedback from the Flying Kiwi before Dr. Steph leaves, because I know she's about to leave us uh, very soon, right? I okay. am in about 10, 15 yeah, minutes. Yeah, so I thought... Um, and. I, it's been a while since I remember or in that I listened to this feedback, but I think it has something to do with uh, health and fitness. And so with that, let's hear from Lucas, the Flying Kiwi. Hey, uh, APG, it's the Flying Kiwi here. Uh, it's been a while since you heard from me, but uh, 
still don't have my medical uh, still uh, trying to, to lose some weight and get a bit fitter and, and stuff so I, I pass it with uh, flying colours but I have booked uh, my sleep study appointment and uh, and it's going to help me out um, I've got a blocked nose today which doesn't help because it's a bit of a hay fever because it's sort of summer here and there's pollen flying around so I think I'll wait for that to clear before I get any sleep study um, but uh, it's interesting I've, I've been thinking about this whole medical thing since my medical has been um, in, in jeopardy and I've been thinking about how um, airline pilots, you know, how worrying it is for me just as a private pilot, let alone for, for you guys. And um, I'm only trying to get a class two. Um, I had had a class one, but I just couldn't be bothered keeping up with all the requirements. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly healthy guy. I, I do my own cooking and I, and I you know, try and eat well. And um, I've lost 10 kg in the last two months to try and bring myself under under 100 kg so I'm now 90 or just just over 90 kg kg I have no idea what that is in pounds because uh, we use proper me- measurements in this country um, but I was wondering um, how you guys sort of keep up with your fitness um, you know uh, you know Dr. Steph you know would just take her out of the equation you know marathon runner you know enough said <laughs> um, it's, it's kind of funny because I, I sort of sit between Dana and Nick in my physique, so I'm, I'm, I'm a fairly tall dude, um, knocking six foot, um, and I'm pretty heavy set, and I'm also as bald as they come because uh, I shave my head. So, <laughs> um, as much as I'd like to have um, Steph's stomach and and uh, and Jeff's mustache, um, I'm sort of <laughs> I'm sort of between those two guys. But um, yeah, I'm just interested to, to hear what your regime is. I know in, uh, Nick and Jeff, you, you guys get out walking a lot, especially Nick with the dogs, which is great. I try to do that with my dogs. Um, but is there any sort of, you know, when, you, when you're sitting down to lunch, you're sort of thinking, oh, should I have the hamburger or should I have the salad? You know, how much of it sort of plays on your mind? Um, you know, I've, I've had quite a few dealings with the CAA, medically speaking, and, and talked to a few other people about it um, and heard how people have lost some of the privileges of their licences due to medical reasons and I don't know maybe as I get a bit older and a bit more mortal I'm, I'm thinking about it uh, a lot more as well so uh, it'd be really interesting to hear sort of how it affects your thinking um, around eating and exercise um, being a pilot um, it would be really great to hear your perspectives and Dr Steph's too although we you know we know you know her crazy predilection for for exercise um anyway uh flying kiwis out thanks for the great show guys thank you for the audio we have another piece of audio from uh lucas the flying kiwi as well um and you know i don't think we can yeah completely rule steph out because even though she is very physically fit and runs marathons and all that kind of stuff i'm sure she has some advice i do um you know and i think it comes down to anyone who's got a busy schedule um you know our pilots on the professional pilots on the panel will have a lot to say in terms of how it weighs into their schedules, whether you're more like Captain Jeff and have uh, a relatively more regular schedule, one that you have a lot more control over, where you basically know where you're going to have uh, free time to be able to build in your exercise routine, or whether it's a little bit more uh, up in the air, or if a lot of time zones are being crossed, that type of thing. I'm sure they'll have great uh, insight for us there. Um, but from my standpoint, and I, you know, I talk to a lot of my patients about this too, because everyone's got busy lives these days, right? Like 
no one has an hour here or there for the most part just lying around where they can go to the gym or go for a run or a swim or whatever it is that you like to do for exercise, take your dogs for the walk, for a walk. Um, but it's still really important to build that time in for yourself. You know, I'm a big proponent of taking care of yourself first, especially when it comes to exercise and your own health, because that's a foundation of of everything you do in life. So you need to make that time for yourself. Not everyone's going to have the same amount of time to to put into it or invest in it. Um, but it doesn't take as much as most people think. Um, you know, when you're first starting to get into it, especially if you weren't doing it previously in terms of exercise, I think starting off slowly. So maybe 30 minutes at a time, maybe a couple of days a week, just to get used to the idea of doing exercise and doing something that's relatively uh, less strenuous. So walking is a good way to start. Um, light weights are a good way to start. Um, you know, always checking with your doctor first to make sure that you're safe to do the type of exercise that you're wanting to get into is a great idea. Yes, Jeff. I see you <laughs> shaking your head there. <laughs> I meant yes. Um, good, yes, good yes, of course. Um, and then you can always build from there. And uh, I mean, for I'll just tell you my routine for going to the gym because it's not as easy as I think a lot of people, especially some of my patients and coworkers think it might be. But if I'm going to the gym, I have to, the way I work it into my schedule, I have to be there at six o'clock in the morning to to get it in for the day. So that means I get up at five o'clock in the morning or a little bit earlier so that I can get all my stuff together, have a bite to eat, get out of the house, get to the gym, finish up at a reasonable time at the gym. Usually I spend about an hour and usually about twice a week actually at the gym um, so that I can get back to work on time. So nothing too crazy there, I don't think. Um, I split that up between doing different types of light weights and various stretching and yoga, tai chi, pilates type exercises as well. Um, I generally try to run. Uh, this this year's a little bit different, so I won't go into that yet. But what I've done in the past is about three days a week, two or three days a week, usually a shorter medium run during the week and a longer run on the weekends and then progressively longer as I'm doing any type of mar marathon training. Um, so it's not a ton of time that I'm putting into it, but you definitely have to carve out the time and it's going to be a little different for everyone's schedule. Um, and pilots are, are no different in that regard. So. That's it. I don't know. Thought you'd have more. Is, is that all? <laughs> That's That's it. It. <laughs> you could do something crazy. That wasn't you could do something crazy. <laughs> like, uh, I ended up doing, um, uh, Lucas, um, over the Christmas holidays. I, I don't, again, still not sure exactly how it happened. It's kind of all a whirlwind, uh, in my memory, but, uh, I ended up signing up for a gym and then, uh, the very next day, actually signing up for personal training, uh, which I call um, torture, uh, physical torture. And I'm still doing it. And uh, in fact, last night, um, I ended up going uh, to a, a PT session. And uh, this young lady um, is, she's a masochistic. Is that the word? Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was uh, not an easy workout. And it's really, really pressing and pushing me which is really what I need because if I don't have it, somebody, you know, they're making me do this stuff, I, I probably wouldn't do it. And since I'm paying a good amount of money uh, every month to, uh, to have somebody make me feel really bad, um, I, I probably wouldn't do it. But uh, I, I am noticing, um, you know, that little bit, you know, that uh, my body's changing a little bit. And uh, the more I do this, the, the less it hurts. And uh, so I'm hoping that I'll continue uh, the the routine uh, for the for the entire year. 
because uh, I've basically committed myself to pay for the entire year. So, and um, I will say this though: it does take a little bit of sacrifice because certainly there are other things I'd rather be doing when I'm actually at the gym and working out. Usually, it's sleeping. No, Steph, I think that you're the kind of person that probably really enjoys it. I do, but I'd also rather be sleeping. Yeah. So uh, I like my sleep just as much as I like getting up and going to the gym. To be honest. And the but. eating, the eating and drinking part for me is, is tough because I, I really love eating and uh, drinking and I'm really, really making an effort to cut down on the amount of beer that I'm drinking and other alcoholic beverages, because I think that the less that I consume in that department, it, it'll be easier for me and my body to get to where it needs to be physically. Yeah, that's a another side of it altogether. And it probably gets away. I mean, that's another challenge for pilots in general. I think anyone who's traveling a lot and in airports and hotels for, you know, a, a good part of the week, um, mm -hmm. we could probably say a whole lot on that subject as well, but well, go ahead. In, you know, like, like Jeff, I've been working out with a trainer for a very long time over, well, coming up on six years now. Um, I work out on a regular, fairly regular basis, and I'm still a big guy. Uh, I recently, in in the past, before you guys met me, I was a bit skinnier because I started eating very healthy and stopped drinking anything other than, well, what I drink normally is water. I don't drink any carbonated fruit type of beverages at all. Um, and then, you know, the alcohol is, is a big factor on it. Again, I, you know, don't drink beer, which has a higher, uh, you know, low, loaf of bread content than, you know, straight hard alcohol, but still straight out hard alcohol has its calorie content and, you know, carbohydrate content. So, uh, you know, as of recent, um, since the beginning of the year, I've really haven't, uh, after the cruise, I said no more. Um, I'm really staying away from it. I don't need to drink and never have needed to drink and prefer, you know, not to drink a whole lot anyways. Uh, so I'm already starting to lose some weight and seeing, seeing some of the effects and my body feels better. But, you know, as a, as a road warrior, as a pilot, we, uh, we are exposed to not such good food. A lot of it is the, you know, uh, highly processed food, even if you try to eat healthy, um, so I, I'm, I'm a perfect example of somebody that really does try to watch what they eat, try to work out, and but yet I still have a large girth. Um, and just a lot of it's genetics. I mean, I, I come from my father at my age, where I'm at right now, had already had his first heart attack and was about probably a good 100 pounds heavier than me. Um, fortunately I haven't had a heart attack and I don't anticipate on having a heart attack because I, you know, I'm on top of my health. So, you know, as long as if you're as big, you know, if you're a bigger person, um, it tends to be just genetics. And if you, you know, try to take care of yourself, you can be health, healthy and be a, you know, a larger frame person. Um, so I, uh, you know, I just try to eat as healthy as I can. I stay away from breads. I stay away from carbohydrates, you know, like white rices, anything that's white, sugar, um, breads and rice and pastas uh, on the overnights. I, I, but I'm like Jeff. I'm a foodie. I mean, I was just in, uh, you know, in, in, in places when I go uh, on, on overnights, I love to taste local cuisine, local uh, places. I mentioned Baltimore, Las one of the best restaurants, Las I think. Probably. 
La Scala, probably one of the best restaurants I've ever, ever, you know, have been to on overnights. Um, the food is just fantastic. And so I'll splurge every once in a while, but I just, I don't eat like that on a regular basis. And, uh, it's it's hard on this, and and you know a, a big piece of that, and they keep on coming up with this is is sleep, uh, sleep for uh, getting your metabolism to to kick in, for you to be able to lose weight, um, and we are as I don't know how you are, Jeff or Nick, on the road, but you know different bed, different night, different sounds in the rooms, everything. I don't necessarily always sleep great, and because of that, um, that affects my ability to lose weight as well. So I um. My sleep is is good because uh, after drinking two six packs of beer, um, I just phew, I hit the pillow and I'm out. You're done. You're but done. I feel yeah. like crap yeah. the next day. I don't know why because I got that's, a really good a lot of sleep. sleep oh, yeah. <laughs> just kidding, of course. Uh, Passing. As, as you know, I was going to say I didn't use to drink a lot either, Dana, until I came on this show and Jeff drove me to it. <laughs> to drink it's it. my fault. <laughs> the show drives you to drink. Exactly yeah, right. That. Okay, well I'm going to become a teetotaler now, so. I think the, the I think the point direction. is, you know, everything in moderation, right? So whether that's exercise, yeah. whether that's the type of food that you're eating, you know, it, you can go crazy on all of that stuff, but you want to do something that's sustainable over the long term and that is is, you know, healthy as well. So it's okay to have the occasional day where you don't do anything terribly physically active or the occasional day where you have, you know, you go out to eat at a nice restaurant and maybe overindulge a little bit, but you want to make sure that you have more good days than than bad days in that regard. So. Right. TWA 88T, um, do you, I forgot who exactly that person is, um, says avoid airport food and, and this person takes um, their food with them in a like a refrigerated um, kind of a bag. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd consider doing something like that if I didn't have a, all this podcasting equipment <laughs> lug around. But uh well, you know, I said that last week, actually, Jeff, because we were talking about the uh, uh, the Focusrite box. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I don't bring that because I I kind of limited. I've been limiting my my space in my bag because I'm bringing my own food. I, I tried I try to bring as much food as I can, uh, but that's only when I'm you know flying. When I'm at the overnight, I I'm still going to go out because I'm not that person likes to slam click. I like to be sociable, right. but you know, it makes it a little more difficult when you're not drinking. The last guy I flew with last week, you know, he, all he wanted to do was go to the beer garden and beer this and beer that. And I'm like, you know what? You know, not only does it not have good food, I'm just not going to drink. So I'm sorry. I'm going to go such and such and, and enjoy myself. So yeah, I just, you know, it, the, the problem is, is when you go out to restaurants, you know, they want you to like their food. And when they when you talk about liking your food, well, they're going to put whatever they need to put into it, i.e. lots of salt, lots of seasoning, lots of fat uh, into the food to make sure it tastes good. And, uh, you know, a, a salad isn't a meal to me. Salad is eating vegetables, um, but I like to eat a, a good square uh, some type of uh, protein with with lots of, of of cooked vegetables, and preferably not soaked in olive oil and all the butter and all that other stuff. So, um, it, that's hard to get. It's hard to get reliably on the road. Yeah, with no no salt. Anything true, to true, true. to add Anyways. from our uh, long haul representative? Uh, no. Moving on. I'm I've done I've I've managed to get through. 24 years of it uh, by eating a combination of uh, good stuff at home because my wife's a great cook. Uh, I 
limit my food on the airplane. Um, I do tend to have a beer or two down route, uh, but everything in moderation. Uh, so nothing's killed me yet. Excellent. Well, I think it was great advice. And thank you, Steph, for um, helping us answer that before you take off, which I think you're going to do right now. Yeah, I think I need to say goodbye for the for this episode. I'm sorry. Oh, you're a no. pilot. You're going to take, take off. off right here. Watch. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, thanks for Brilliant. joining us. Nice to see you for as nice. long as you could. Yeah, yeah great good to see you guys. Too. Have a great rest of the show. Go, uh, Pats. go Eagles. Burn that hat. Uh, and don't I, I, maybe, to I, maybe I should hat. clarify that I'm not the world's biggest Philadelphia Eagles fan, but um, based on... You're a bandwagon. Well, just based on... Band there's, there's a choice one or the other this weekend, so yeah. this is my choice. It's a choice That's of right. two. Right. <laughs> and don't forget to turn off your Good recorder. Choice. Thank you. Yes, because <laughs> you don't want another 48-hour recording. Yeah, that was a little long. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Goodbye, um, everyone. All right. Bye. Bye, Steph. Steph. Bye, Steph. <laughs> Have fun. All right. Now she's gone. We can talk about her. We can say all yeah, such great things. All, all that good advice. Geez, uh, that was how I did t- turn it off because <laughs> I was just getting so embarrassed. I here. was starting to get hungry, actually. Yeah, that's the other yeah. thing. Um, okay. Uh, so she is Tai Chi as well and yoga and God love me. Is there anything she doesn't do that's good for uh, you? Oh, chicken nuggets. Of course. We didn't she actually get I- under the chicken nuggets, did we? Didn't what? Didn't get on to Steph's love yeah, of chicken Yeah, I didn't even nuggets. think of that until you just mentioned it. Highly yeah, processed so food. Going, mm. uh, hang on a minute, young lady. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've seen her drink a beer or two or three oh, or four. Seen her drink I do under the table. <laughs> she does. <laughs> yeah. But uh, all in moderation for most of the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Except when yeah. you're around. Yeah, I guess I'm a bad influence or something. Uh, um let's see going back to alex's feedback um question two i flew recently on the plastic fantastic 787 900 (laughs) plastic fantastic to be honest it was okay and did not get the wow like the wow i mean like this like uh taking the a380 for the first time it seems to me that acme red has issues with this plane question mark Every time I go past one at Heathrow, their engine covers are open. So what are the issues on the fleet? And we've talked about this in previous shows. It's really the issues with Rolls-Royce's engines, apparently. Yeah, the Trent 1000 have got a, a problem with their blade, longevity of their blades. Um, and with the coatings on them, uh, a few blocked uh, heating uh, elements, you know, they have the blades are hollow and they've got uh, uh, rings of holes up near the leading edge that they blow air through to cool the blades, which is how they manage to run them at such high temperatures and make them so efficient. Uh, so there are a ver- variety of problems which are in uh, fixes are all in the pipeline. In fact, uh, the latest versions will be coming out. But in the meantime, there, of course, uh, Rolls is trying to build new engines for the new aircraft coming out as well as. Um, recondition all the ones that are having problems so it's it's just a matter of they you know they, they just they just can't do it in time and so some of the aircraft are being ground yeah i'm sure that eventually they'll get all caught up and everything will be running smoothly 
I mean, not there's not an aircraft in the world that hasn't come into service where that'd be a few mm. problems. But I think the seven uh, eight, whether it be their batteries uh, or uh, the engines or various other little hiccups, um, has has had its fair yeah, share. That's sure for sure. And then question number three: seat belt sign for turbulence. When do you turn it on? I've noticed in the last year or so, the smallest shake gets the seatbelt light turned on. So what's the policy? Captain discretion? Have you ever used it to get people to sit down uh, because of uh, disturbance in the cabin or just too many people walking around? Uh, he goes on to say, thanks again for a great show. Have uh, here a curveball. Let's hope this year, the year when the 747 finally goes to the scrapyard and history books. Uh, let's see. Episode 242. I spoke of my lack of love for the 747, much to Jeff and Rick's shock. I will leave you with a final. Oh, I tell you what, we'll, we'll save that for the very end. We'll answer this seatbelt sign, uh, question first, I guess. Um, so it is the captain's discretion as to when the seatbelt light gets turned on. And there are some captains that turn it on for just a little, little burble, um, and then there are some that, you know, wait until it's relatively significant before they turn it on because, um, and then you have to remember to turn it back off again. So that's one of the hard things for us is that, you know, we'll, we'll perhaps turn it on at the appropriate time, but then because it's been on for a while, uh, we might forget that we still have it on. And then I've, I've had flights where I've looked up and the flight's almost over and I never, ever turned it off from the top of climb you know so uh, you know we're humans and we normally remember to uh, turn off the light or turn it on at the right time but um, as far as i my experience it's uh, captain discretion how about with your company nick yeah it's definitely don't just end with the captain of course uh, i've actually been back uh, in the cabin when uh, the belts come on uh, so actually it's whoever's no. uh, at the controls at the time so uh, but they always say the captain has chosen to put the seat on i'm standing there going no, i did not i, don't, I, don't I am the captain that. i did not choose to do that <laughs> <laughs> exactly right so uh, i noticed there is uh, some people are very quick to put it on yeah which uh, is obviously the safest option because if someone does uh, fall over and you didn't have them on, there's always that possibility that uh, they might litigate against the airline for not giving them warning. Um, but, of course, if you use them too much, then people are just going to get up right. anyway, uh, and it becomes a, a, an irrelevant notice. I like people to take uh, note of it when I put it on, so I put it on when I think it's – required and what i try and do is imagine my 80 year old granny not that i have one anymore um trying to make her way up the aisle uh, to, to go use the restroom and i think well if she would have problems staying on her feet then that's uh, you know that's the time the belts need to go on not when some fit bloke is uh, going oh this is hardly moving but uh, you've got to think of everyone that might be on board whether it be a toddler or a a peacock or a uh, an old lady um so that that's it um there's another bit that you ever put it on to get people to sit down because of a disturbance in the cabin well the cabin crew have been known to say uh they've got an awful lot of people around the bar um you know it would be really nice if we could just get some of them to sit down because they're being a bit noisy and they're keeping uh, passengers trying to sleep awake that sort of thing or down the back end uh, we've got a whole bunch of people in the rear galley we can't get on with our work and 
to a certain extent, I, I feel a little bit exasperated because the bar and the free areas on the aircraft are there to be used by the passengers who paid the money. Um, and it's not putting the seatbelt sign on for the convenience of the crew is definitely not in my uh, list of good things to do. Um, but uh, if it obviously becomes a safety uh, concern, then I will consider it. But it's really something I do not like doing. People pay a lot of money to come uh, on Acme Red. They enjoy the facilities we have for them. And if you deny them that by putting the seatbelt signs on all the time, when it's not really required, then that's very uh, poor customer relations. So uh, I always bear that in mind. And uh, not everyone else in the aircraft has the same opinion because because they're not always thinking from the same point of view. I like the way, you're, the way you're thinking about that. Um, that would be... It would be hard for me to do that as well, you know, thinking that, okay, well, I'm putting it on not really for the reason it's supposed to be on. So, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, you, you, I almost feel like I'm defrauding right. the passengers a yeah. little bit. And, and that's not, that's not what, I, that's not the whole point. Uh, the point is there, it's there for safety. Uh, yep. Okay. Um, anything to add, Dana? No, I mean, it's, uh, as you said, it's captain's discretion. There are times as a first officer that I'll, you know, I'll try to back the captain up. Um, if uh, I noticed the seatbelt sign, like you mentioned, from top, you know, from the whole flight that, you know, you've got to turn it off. Uh, you know, if I see it's on, I'll say, yeah, Captain, do you, do you really want that on? Still want the seatbelt <laughs> sign? Do you really want, want that yeah. on? Or, you know, Captain, I think it's getting a little bumpy. That one, I normally don't have to say it's more. More usually, you know, kept me pretty smooth here. You, you know, want to leave them seated. Yeah. So kind of just, a friendly just, CRM uh, reminder, you know. You know, you yeah, still have the no, uh, seatbelt on, you idiot. Captain, what do you think? You yeah, think it's so. smooth enough for them to get up now? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's the way mm -hmm. I approach it. I mean, and usually it's when we get to top of climb. Um, I noticed that Acme, most of the captains, I don't know why. Because it says there that the captain will make the uh, the PA on the initial descent, but uh, first officer is usually a pilot not flying, or, or whoever's the pilot not flying is supposed to be making the initial welcome on board announcement. Um, but it seems like captains always want to do it, so whatever. Uh, but at that point is when I normally will will say, you know, captain, you want to leave the seatbelt sign on, or you want to make PA with with the with everybody still seated, mm -hmm. so. That's that's the gentle way of, of being proactive right. as a first and officer. I, over time, um, I've become less sensitive to, uh, you know, like turning the seatbelt light on every time I felt like a little bit of a tiny bit of turbulence because of the reasons that we were just talking about, you know, where, where people go, they, they look up and it's always on. So now it's losing its effectiveness and everybody just assumes that the captain forgot to turn it off and I'm going to get up anyway. And I'm, I'm going to ignore that seatbelt line on. So I try to um, be a little bit more um, tolerant of a certain level of chop and turbulence before I turn it on just because, you know, I try to get people out of that, that, uh, that rut of feeling like it's always going to be on and it really has no meaning to me anymore. Well, and, and I'll <laughs> I'll never forget this flight as long as as long as I live. I flew from uh, as a jump seater. I flew from Atlanta to San Francisco on Acme, and the entire flight the seatbelt 
just regardless of whether it was smooth or bumpy, the seatbelt light was never turned off on a five-hour flight. And I got up uh, a couple times, go to the restroom in full uniform, mm-hmm. mind you. And the flight attendant reminded me the seatbelt signs on. I looked at the tour. Um, I'm in uniform. I'm a crew member. I'm going to go ahead and get up and go to the bathroom, but that seatbelt sign shouldn't really be on right now. Um, and she gave me a lot of grief about it because the second time I got up, she was, said the same thing to me. And I looked at her and I said to her, there's really no reason for that seatbelt sign to be on. So the, the pilot command on that flight never, in f- on a five-hour flight, turned the seatbelt mm-hmm. sign off. That's, yeah, that's, that's a problem. Anomaly, I think. It is an anomaly, but yeah, still. Yeah, I'm glad to say it is. But uh, I have experienced exactly the same, and uh, it frustrates the hell out of me. Because, uh, you know, particularly if you're uh, in economy and you're on a long-haul flight and someone leaves the belts on for an extremely long time, then, uh, you know, uh, one, people are just ignoring it, and uh, they're starting to get stuff out of the, the overheads, all that kind of stuff, and that could be very dangerous if there re- is a really a chance of uh, turbulence. But more likely, uh, they're doing it for somebody else's convenience, and I'm going, that's not what I'm paying money right. to be here for. You know? uh, Christian in the chat room makes a good point. He's, uh, we're we're le- learning more about Christian now. He's a 777 pilot. Um, he said that uh, uh, the, the thing is, when it's been smooth for a while and I switch the seatbelt light off, that's exactly when it starts jumping again. And that's so true. It's like, yeah, it's like uh, without, it's always <laughs> without fail, you're going, yeah. okay. And I usually look over at the first officer and say, what do you think? You think uh, it's going to be okay now? Oh, yeah. So I turn it. Of course, you know, they don't care. Yeah. I turn it off and then immediately <laughs> the airplane starts shaking. That's exactly right. Now, I, I've got a trick. I, I try and trick the airplane. Yeah. So I reach up and pretend to turn it. I, so I just give it a little stroke and go, uh-huh. yeah, I'm uh-huh. going to turn it off now. And, and just to see mm-hmm. if it's going to start bumping again. And if the airplane uh, leaves it smooth. Reverse psychology. Exactly. By the way, I, I for those in the chat room, I've just put up a uh, little cartoon on my uh, video image there, which is actually uh, one that came with this feedback. So I don't know why it's with the feedback, but I thought it was yes, worth sharing. Yes, and we're going to get that here in a second. Um, okay. Well, let's just do it right now. That's enough of the turbulence. Um, uh, let's see. I'll leave you with this final 747 thought. Louise Griffin knows from Family Guy. Spooky, how similar. <laughs> so, uh, again, if you're watching the video... And uh, if not, uh, check out the show notes and then you'll see this image of uh, Louise, who is Peter Griffin's uh, very lovely animated wife. Um, and uh, in this case, she's in a, a little bikini. But uh, the, the whole point of this is her the shape of her nose, the way the cartoonist draws uh, Louise's nose reminds Alex, the Boeing hater, uh, of the uh, 747 nose, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's interesting. Actually. Yes. yes. Uh, and I wasn't what I was looking at. <laughs> but, yeah, I should have cropped that. Uh, no, I noticed she only had three fingers. I was oh, really? trying to work out. Wow. Uh, yeah. Attention to detail. How about that? Three fingers yeah. and a thumb. Maybe the pinky is just out of yeah. view. I don't know. No, no, no. It's, it's common. If you look at uh, mm-hmm. Simpsons, they've all oh, got three okay. fingers. I never noticed that. All right. Ah. Well, Alex, I hope that we answered your questions. And let's see, we've been going almost for two hours now. I think this might be a good time for us to play this week's installment of Plain Tales. 
by the old Woo-hoo. pilot. Here we go. The old pilot's plain tales, fighting high demons. At six foot four inches, Flight Lieutenant Ted Powell's was a bit big for a Spitfire. He had joined the Royal Air Force as an apprentice during the Second World War and then trained as a photo reconnaissance pilot. However, when hostilities ceased, he was given the opportunity to remain a serving officer and promoted to the rank of flying officer. In 1950, he was a bit surprised when he was posted to RAF Finningley to do a refresher course on the Spitfire PR-14 and then up to RAF Lucas to fly the PR-19 in both high and low altitude recce sorties. Someone obviously had a plan for him because after a few months he was posted out to the Far East to RAF Tenga in Singapore, to be precise. Here he performed PR sorties in Spitfire FR-18s as part of Operation Fire Dog, also known as the Malayan Emergency, which was the defence of Malaysia from communist guerrillas. Ted flew recce and strike sorties, but just before Christmas 1950, he was taken aside by his CO and given a rather intriguing assignment. Along with Flight Sergeant Padden, he was told to take a couple of Spitfires down to RAF Kai Tak in Hong Kong. There was no explanation of his duties. It was all a bit cloak and dagger. There was no official briefing. Powell's was quietly asked by a photographic interpreter if he could take some photos of the Chinese mainland and some islands. Under Mao Zedong, China was aggressively pursuing its objectives in Korea and elsewhere. The British commanders were concerned for the security of Hong Kong and other areas of interest in the region, so good intelligence was essential, such as the state of play on Hainan Island, which had fallen into communist hands in the summer of 1950. So, without formal orders, written or otherwise, Powell's authorised himself and began flying sorties over Chinese territory in his Spitfire. After some 16 trips flown within about 100 miles of Hong Kong, he received his most difficult request. Did he mind having a go at photographing the island of Hainan, in particular the airfield and dock area? Hainan was at the extreme range of the PR-19, but after looking at the mission carefully, he thought it could be done. Because he was going to fly a total of around 800 nautical miles over the ocean, Ted asked if he might have the assistance of a US destroyer and an RAF Sunderland in case he came down in the South China Sea. Accurate weather forecasts were not easy to come by, but on May 21, 1951, he took off in his Spitfire, Papa Sierra 852, turned southwest and climbed up over the ocean. At 30,000 feet, the weather started off good, but he noticed the cloud building up to the west over the northern part of Hainan Island. 
He called Touraine, also known as Da Nang, on the east coast of Vietnam, beyond Hainan Island, pretending to be an American, asking for a weather report. This was a planned transmission, intended really to inform his Sunderland and the destroyer escort that he was starting his photo run. He wasn't supposed to come below 30,000 feet, but he had to go lower to get into clear air. Turning his cameras on, he started his planned runs, but there had been a considerable growth in the size of his targets, and he realised he would need an additional run to cover the whole area. On this third run, he spotted the glint of the sun from a couple of approaching Chinese fighters on an intercept course from the north. Keeping an eye on the fighters, he patiently completed his final pass, before opening up the throttle of his powerful Rolls-Royce Griffin engine and headed for home. Climbing up to 36,000 feet, he lost the Chinese fighters, and once he was sure he was in the clear, he throttled back to an economical cruise. As he assessed his situation, he realised that his unplanned third photo run had left him worryingly short of fuel. He descended to a lower, more economic level and worked out that he only had five minutes of spare fuel. As he ate up the miles, the weather began to worsen and now in cloud he began to ice up. A further descent was needed to get out of the icing, which would further increase his fuel consumption. Finally, he came within range of Kai Tak and he obtained a steer towards Victoria Peak. With the overcast cloud only 1,800 feet over the airfield and running dangerously short of fuel, he started a continuous descent. A request for the closest runway, 3-1, was denied because of a strong crosswind and he was given the much shorter runway, 0-7. Overshoots on 0-7 were forbidden because of the buildings and mountains beyond but he was so short of fuel, he didn't think that was going to be a problem. With his fuel gauge resting on empty, he descended over Kowloon Bay, lowering his undercarriage. He was about to drop his flaps when his engine coughed and then failed, his propeller stopping dead in the air. He was completely out of fuel. Pals had kept a bit of speed and height in hand to dead-stick the aircraft, but even so, he realised he wasn't going to make the runway. With amazing skill, he eked out every ounce of performance from his beautiful Spitfire and made it as far as the grass in the undershoot. He bounced once and landed neatly on the runway. He'd been airborne for three and a half hours. Despite that desperately close call, a few months later, Ted was asked to repeat his feat and head off again for Hainan. He flew his favourite aircraft, Papa Sierra 852, and again the weather made his life difficult. This time it was the winds, as after he finished his runs over the island, he turned back into an unexpectedly strong headwind. Making his calculations, he eyed up his fuel gauge, and with 200 miles left to fly, he only had 50 gallons left. Carefully planning his approach, he positioned himself for runway 13 at Kai Tak, and for a second time, he sucked his fuel tank dry on final approach. 
With a little more height in hand this time, and with nothing but the whistling sound of the slipstream instead of the throaty grumble of his griffin, he safely made the runway, with enough speed to gently turn left and taxi off. By the end of 1951, Ted Powles had flown 63 photo-reconnaissance sorties over Chinese territory. Amazingly, he was given a special briefing for only four of these sorties, and each time he was reminded that he had no authority to carry out the flight, and that if anything happened, he was on his own. For these flights, Flight Lieutenant Powles was awarded the Air Force Cross with the following citation. This officer, even when flying at altitude, often over the sea, alone in a single-seater aircraft, has always shown the greatest determination to complete his mission, although this entailed returning to base with his fuel almost exhausted. He has repeatedly earned high praise for his skill, courage and high standard of airmanship. As nerve-wracking as his clandestine missions over China were, it wasn't this that brought Ted's career to an early close. It was a much more dramatic incident. It was now 1952, and Ted was conducting high-level meteorological missions to gain data on the upper atmosphere for the proposed Comet Jetliner service between England and Japan. He closed the canopy and switched on his oxygen before takeoff. Once airborne, at 160 knots with 9 pounds per square inch boost at 2600 rpm over the colony of Hong Kong in a wide left-hand circuit, he climbed to 30,000 feet, noting the outside air temperature to be minus 30.20 centigrade. Continuing the climb in his powerful Mark 19 Spitfire, taking measurements as he went, he reached 40,000 feet, where the outside air temperature was minus 53.8, but he was disappointed that he had not experienced any turbulence or drift caused by high winds. The visibility was unusually good. There was not a cloud in the sky. By the time he reached 45,000 feet, where the outside temperature was minus 63.4, he had reduced his indicated airspeed to 140 knots. When Ted's altimeter indicated 48,500 feet, that's 50,000 feet true altitude, the temperature was minus 70.4, and his indicated airspeed was back at 120 knots. The controls of the Spitfire were very sensitive in the thin air at this altitude, and most of the time he was forced to fly on instruments. As everything seemed to be functioning normally, and as he had a little spare time, he decided to see if he could get the aircraft to 50,000 feet indicated. Increasing the Griffin's RPM to 2,700, he raised the nose of the Mark 19, reducing the indicated airspeed to 115 knots. To keep climbing, he eventually had to reduce the speed to 110 knots, and by the time he crept his altimeter to 50,000 feet, the airspeed was 108 knots and the boost less than zero. The controls of the aircraft were now extremely sensitive. The nose was high and flying the Spitfire was a balancing act. He had to constantly make slight adjustments to maintain equilibrium. 
Ted described what he saw. The sky above appeared black and the visibility was so good I could see from the Chinese island of Hainan to the southwest all along the coast of China to the island of Formosa. To the east-northeast, along Pearl River, the city and airfield of Canton appeared to be just under my starboard wing. The view was breathtaking. It was like a giant map, and I could see the curvature of the earth. I knew I was flying on the very edge of the performance envelope for the Spitfire, and I felt exhilarated and yet quite tense as I scanned my instruments for any sign of deviation from the norm. With the appropriate corrections applied, my Dalton calculator indicated that my true height was 51,550 feet. At the time, that was a world record for a piston-powered aircraft. He glanced into the cockpit, just in time to catch the cockpit pressurization red warning light illuminate. He knew he would have to descend quickly, to prevent a dangerous and painful case of the bends. He instinctively eased the stick forward and pulled back on the power to prevent overspeeding the propeller. Ted looked around at the cockpit to see if the canopy seal had burst when the Spitfire started to shake. Glancing in, he saw his airspeed at 280 knots, well above the maximum speed above 40,000 feet. Pulling back on the control column, he was shocked to see his dive steepen, and the harder he pulled, the steeper it got. The spit was now shaking violently, and the instrument panel was unreadable. In a vertical dive, Ted was standing on the rudder pedals, and the stick felt like it was stuck in concrete, completely immovable. He worried that if he pulled any harder, something would break. Beside the vibration, the aircraft was yawing from side to side. It felt as though a giant hand was shaking it. Ted thought that if he couldn't pull out of the dive, maybe he could trim it out. As he reached for the trimmer, he noticed that mist had formed over the wings and he wondered whatever might be causing that. Worried that the trim tabs might force the elevators into a position where they would fail, he remembered reading about a test pilot who had encountered a similar problem. He reasoned that he was close to the speed of sound and the centre of pressure on the wings had moved back so far that he was experiencing reversal of control. Taking his life into his hands, Ted tried pushing on the stick instead of pulling, reasoning that, at the worst, he might be able to bunt out of the dive. The Spitfire was thundering downwards like a runaway horse, but using both hands he began to push, shouting at his aircraft to Let go! Let go, damn it! Let go! After many long seconds, the vibration began to lessen, The yawing stopped and the mist cleared from over the wings. The nose was coming up, but as Ted felt the stiff controls start to move again and the controls began to free up, the nose stopped rising and began to drop again. So Ted immediately reversed the pressure and started to pull out. He placed his feet in the top stirrups on the rudder bar and began to heave out of the dive until he was in danger of blacking out, so he eased off. Having survived this far, he couldn't risk becoming unconscious. 
He checked his airspeed. He was still doing over 500 knots, and he was now down to nearly 3,000 feet. A look at his stopwatch showed that he had descended over 48,000 feet in less than a minute. His carburetors had frozen, so the only way to increase power was to up the boost, and his canopy was iced up and stuck in position. Finding it hard to see out, he flew back on instruments until his chilled aircraft warmed up. He hoped that he hadn't overstressed his favourite machine too much, little realising that he was the one most stressed. Climbing out, his flying suit was soaking wet right through to his May West. His gloves, even his socks, were dripping. His friends came running up, wondering what had happened as Ted stood by his aircraft as white as a sheet. He thought he might have gone supersonic, but it was later calculated that he had only reached an estimated but unverified 600 knots, which was around Mach decimal 96, but still an unbelievable speed for a piston aircraft. Ted carried on flying his high-level sorties, but he began to feel unwell. As he climbed into the thin upper atmosphere, he started suffering from flu-like symptoms, sweats and aches, and when he descended again, a feeling of euphoric relief would wash over him. The engineers checked out his aircraft and Ted went to see the medical officer, but neither his aircraft nor his body showed any visible problems. The strange symptoms he was feeling became more severe and started happening at lower and lower altitudes, but nobody really had any idea what was happening. Ted knew nothing about psychology, and the medical officers didn't seem to either. It became increasingly hard for him to complete his missions, and Ted realised it was time to quit flying. He was given a complete medical examination, and it was discovered that the sight in one of his eyes was below the required level, so his medical was quietly downgraded to let him work behind a desk until he retired from the Royal Air Force. In later life, with his wife, Dr. Marie Powles, he moved to Arden, North Carolina, where he passed away in 2008. Another beautifully told tale. Right, right. Right, very kind, very kind. Thanks, Jeff. Indeed, very good. Interesting little story that just came across it by accident. But uh, the thing I liked about it was uh, um, the fact that I didn't realize that we were flying spy missions over China. No. Uh, that was the first thing. And the second thing was this remarkable uh, um, uh, event in his Spitfire and the fact that the damned airplane held together. I mean, he was right in the transonic region. And, of course, uh, um, this theory about uh, control reversal, well, it had been um, proven to happen in roll occasionally, but that was more to do with uh, torsional twisting of the wings um, overcoming the effect of the aileron. In pitch, probably not, but it was a, a, a well-known Thing. A lot of pilots thought it happened uh, around this period. In fact, I think afterwards they decided probably not. Uh, 
and um, the pushing had little effect. But oh. uh, the fact was that as he came lower through the atmosphere, um, the uh, speed of sound, of course, changes, and uh, the chances are the central pressure moved back forward over his wings, giving uh, the aircraft the chance to pull out. Uh, but the thing that attracted me to the story, of course, was that this just this one flight affected him mentally so uh, severely that he started getting uh, all this, uh, these symptoms of anxiety, which people didn't really know much about then, uh, as he tried to go back up into the same high-level environment. Um, and so, you know, it was a form of mental illness that uh, he... Uh, and the, the nice way... <laughs> The nice way that his friends in the Air Force managed to deal with it. They, they found another problem for him uh, that allowed him to step away from flying, which I thought was a gracious way to let a brave guy um, finish his career. Yes, they, they kept his honor intact. I guess exactly. it kind of sounds like uh, in those PTSD days it, almost, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, I'm certain that's what we would have classified yeah. it as nowadays, Jeff. Yeah, wow. Exactly. What a great story. Yeah. Thanks. And uh, a testament to the uh, the way that that uh, Spitfire was built, as you say. Oh, golly, yes. I mean, we're talking about the early jet age, but we forget just how goddamn powerful those uh, last generation of uh, huge warbirds, how, how good they were. I mean, obviously, you guys had a whole bunch more, which uh, you even carried forward into the Vietnam War. But um, the Spitfire was probably one of our best and last. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to some more feedback. Uh, Clinton uh, sent this. He says, hey, guys, I was wondering what you all thought about the new Fox show L.A. to Vegas. The slapstick comedy side of me loves it. I, w I wonder, though, how many people that watch it actually know what goes on behind the door. Love the podcast. Definitely have the syndrome. Can't wait to hear your thoughts on this one. Uh, have you, either of you two seen L.A. to Vegas? I am not. Myself, I, I've, no. I've seen like uh, the first episode, the pilot, and then, you know, because the first episode is called the pilot, has nothing to do with piloting and uh, <laughs> and part of the second. And it, it's cute. It, I'm not sure it's going to be good enough to really last, you know, like for another another season or whatever. But uh, um, it's 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 funny. It's, uh, as you said, uh, very slapstick and very, you know, outrageous and provocative. Oh, by the way, that does remind me. Uh, thanks for the uh, recommendation to watch the Orville. That I mm -hmm. am watching, and I eagerly wait the next one that comes out. It's great fun. Yeah, that's a fun show. Um, yeah, so uh, if you're a listener out there and have seen L.A. to Vegas, uh, let us know what you think about it. Um, let's see. Glenn uh, wrote about this. Now, earlier we had talked about uh, problems with altimetry and the proper setting of such instruments. And uh, this is something that he sent us. He said, I thought this might be good for the show. Only in Russia would the crew ignore all the warnings. <laughs> there we go again. Glenn is anti-Russian, apparently. <laughs> um, anyway, the, uh, the incident occurred on the 25th of January, I guess, a relatively recent um, uh, BAE-125, which I think is very similar to or perhaps the predecessor of the Hawker 800. Um, and uh, I'm not sure what 
company originally made it? Wasn't it Hawker Siddeley or did Hawker Siddeley? Yeah, Hawker Siddeley would have made the original and then they were absorbed okay. by British Aerospace. So it became one of their, a bit like the way Boeing takes over everybody. <laughs> there you go. They're not the first ones, I guess. Um, pilots no. of an executive jet failed to set their altimeter to the correct pressure level before the aircraft descended low enough to collide with trees, investigators in Russia have determined. The crew allowed the BAE 125-800 to continue descending despite automated warnings, and the aircraft suffered substantial damage from the collision some 18 kilometers from the airport before the pilots aborted the approach. Uh, let's see. The uh, jet had departed Tayumen, bound for near Yungri, Cholman Airport, on June 5th. Oh, this happened in uh, summer of... Uh, 2016, June 2016. Um, it had been conducting the approach at night and had been following the Rugal 2 pattern, which involved flying southeast before turning left onto the 083 degree heading for runway 8. The crew initially had difficulty contacting the local Chilman Air Traffic Center on 129.7 megahertz and instead reached the regional near Yungri Center on 121.7. The center, upon the crew's request, cleared the flight to descend to flight level 90, uh, 2,750 meters, before transferring the aircraft to Chilman Tower Control. The tower confirmed the transition level as 2,450 meters and the airfield pressure, QFE, as 685 uh, millimeters of uh, mercury and allowed the aircraft to descend to 500 meters ahead of the, its turn towards the runway approach heading. As the jet descended, the tower asked the crew to confirm the QFE setting. While the crew replied with the correct number, 685, they needed to convert this to millibars, which would have resulted in a QFE of 913 millibars. So the setting was given in one unit, uh, millimeters of mercury, and uh, they, I guess, mistook that for uh, millibars. Instead, the crew... I, I don't know if that's possible, Jeff, because you can't get an altimeter down to 685 millibars. Know. So if you tried to dial in 685, it wouldn't go that low. It, hmm. I don't know what the lowest, the average altimeter is. It, would, it will rarely go down below the low mm -hmm. 800s. So, you know, 850 or 830, just because the pressure never gets that low right. in millibars. So I think their confusion was probably between QFE okay. and QNH. Uh, let's see. Instead, the crew asked for confirmation of the sea level pressure, QNH, to which the tower gave the figure of 1012 millibars. Uh, the crew did not recalculate the airfield pressure to give a QFE figure of millibars, says the inquiry, and instead set the altimeter to QNH while continuing to descend. This effectively meant that the altimeter was falsely showing the aircraft to be more than 800 meters above its actual height. Uh, so... In other words, they thought they were 800 meters higher than they actually were. They were very close to the ground. Upon reaching the cleared height of 500 meters, the aircraft would have still been indicating a height of more than 1,300 meters. The enhanced ground, excuse me, the enhanced ground proximity warning system began to issue sink rate and terrain alerts and within a few seconds ordered the crew to pull up. But the inquiry says the crew did not follow the requirements of the flight manual and instead continued with the descent. <laughs> 
That's a big mistake. Uh-oh. Oops. <laughs> yeah. The reason Oops. why we... What's that famous quote? Shut up, gringo. <laughs> it's like, okay, the enhanced ground proximity warning system is there to prevent something like this from happening. Uh, but you have to pay attention to it <laughs> and honor it. Anyway, the incru- uh Let's see. the. Uh, uh, I already read that paragraph. It climbed away. Despite sustaining damage to the leading edge of the wings, ailerons, horizontal stabilizer, and the engine inlets and fan blades, <laughs> pretty much everything on the airplane, the uh, collision partly jammed the elevator and the jet's left-hand winglet was torn off, says the inquiry, causing considerable difficulty for the crew as they tried to control the aircraft. Inspection of the uh, aircraft managed to land, let's see, inspection of the Aero Limousine aircraft, which managed to land without further incident, found that it had suffered impact damage to several other structures and systems, including air brakes, radio altimeter antenna, and angle of attack sensor. Whew, these boys are oh, yeah. lucky, eh? Yeah. Very Definitely. much so. So maybe a little bit uh, for those um, who don't quite understand the differences between QFE, QNH, and 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 the world um, over there. I guess when you're when you're dealing with various units, how this can all be thrown into a very confusing bowl of soup. Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, for a start, we're we're making a conversion from there millimeters of mercury which is an odd kind of uh for those who aren't familiar it, it's the way old barometers used to work you know you used to have to have a column of mercury suspended in a glass tube and uh, as the outside air pressure changed the column of mercury would move up and down you'd measure it against the scale and that's how you got the pressure and that's why uh, in america it's inches of mercury uh and in uh, russia it's millimeters of mercury uh millibars is the si unit that uh, is generally used uh, in uh, europe and a lot of other places in the world um so but the here the main thing is well they've one first of all got to make the uh, correction across so they can whatever unit their altimeter uses they've uh, made the correction to that unit so they can set their altimeter correctly but then of course in russia which is not common most of their airfields they land on qfe not qnh and in almost everywhere else in the world civil airline pilots land on qnh so what's the difference qfe is your height measured above the airfield datum qnh is your height measured above sea level so in this case, it looks like the airfield was about 800 meters above sea level, which is why they got that 800 meter error. So their altimeter, had they descended all the way to zero, would have put them at the same height as the sea. But of course, the airfield, which is slightly higher than that, um, it put them up, effectively would have put them underground if they'd gone to uh, zero. And it looks like they were flying the approach thinking they had QFE set when they actually had QNH set, or alternatively, they thought the heights on their approach plates were in QNH, not in QFE. So they got that datum, that air, um, altimeter pressure setting datum wrong, either on their altimeters or on their um, understanding of the plates, which is why they tried to descend so in into effect, the So in fact, if you're using QFE... Um, it's it's almost as if your barometric altimeter is like a radio altimeter. Oh, exactly right. When you land the aircraft, your pressure altimeter will okay. read zero. Whereas we're always used to landing where our, with our pressure altimeter reading the altitude of the. I'm not sure airfield. about this, and perhaps Colonel Jeff could uh, let me know. And of course, it may have been before he flew for them, but I I kind of remember back many 
many years ago that American Airlines, when they were flying instrument approaches, would actually use a QFE scheme to uh, set um, bugs and that kind of thing. Um, not sure. I don't think they do that anymore. But um, everybody else at that time that I knew of uh, was using the QNH. And so when we land in Atlanta, the field elevation is 1,026 feet. And that's what your barometer, your altimeter will read when you are on or very close to that uh, when you're on the runway. Exactly right. Now, the uh, uh, in the Air Force, uh, where I did all my training, uh, we use QFE all the mm. time. So we're always flying around as we approach the airfield. When you came within a certain distance, you changed your altimeter from the sea level pressure of QNH to the airfield pressure datum of QFE, and you flew your approach according to that. Uh, so that when we were doing circuits, you know, we're always just set a thousand feet if that was the circuit I'd or fifteen hundred feet. Whereas uh, if you were doing your circuits on uh, QNH, you would have to uh, add the height of your circuit to the airport elevation and come up with a different figure. Say the airfield was 500 feet high, you were trying to fly 1500 feet, that would circuit. That would make your altimeter, you would need to read 2000 feet when you were downwind. Um, so the RAF used QFE as a matter of simplicity for its, its pilots, but there is always that danger that you might forget to move the altimeter from QNH to QFE. So for a while, they went to QNH. And then after a while, they decided that that wasn't very safe. So they moved <laughs> back again. And I have no idea what they're doing now. But the civil world, in my experience, apart from the odd place like uh, in Russia, uh, are almost exclusively QNH. And that's what we do the world hmm. round, really. Yeah, I've never ever done that kind of a, um, procedure using QFE. Yeah, I mean, there's no real difference to us except that, um, you know, you've just got to remember mm -hmm. to set it. And, uh, you know, when, when you land, you go, oh, look. My so so your it. approach yeah. plates and all that kind of stuff, <laughs> all the altitudes were referring to QFE-based uh, altimetry. Interesting. Absolutely. Okay. Wow. <laughs> Danny, have you ever flown um, an approach procedure or whatever using QFE and not QNH? Yeah. Never. kind of odd. Always yeah. Q&H. All right. Um, Colin uh, writes, Hello, Captain Jeff, Nick, Dana, Dr. Steph. My name is Colin. I'm from the Chicago land area. Currently a first officer with a regional airline. Shall we call it Acme West Jr.? Flying the CRJ fleet for the company. This is my first feedback since I began listening to your show. So I'll give a quick background on myself. I started my flying at a public university in the deep south of Illinois and obtained all my licensing, private pilot, uh, commercial, and let's see, see, oh, commercial flight instructor. Oh, so I see what he's saying. Private through commercial flight instructor with their 141 program. I began flight instructing after graduation at an airport just north of O'Hare, formerly known as Pawaukee, currently known as Chicago Executive. I guess they wanted to make Chicago sound a little fancier by having an executive airport. Anyway, about two years of people trying to crash our planes in the name of learning and me showing them how not to, I began my career with Acme West Jr. I finished up IOE in December in the CRJ 200 and OOE, which stands for Other Operating Experience, in the 700-900 for the first week of January. I have to say that it was a big shift from the single and twin props I was flying, but I've loved every minute of it. I've been listening to your show since late 2015, 
when I began instructing and have thoroughly enjoyed every minute of it. I made my commute to the flight school or it made my commute to the flight school that much more enjoyable. I'm currently based at Chicago O'Hare and only have to spend three weeks or only had to spend three weeks on reserve, four days on, three days off before holding a line this February. This must be, they must be desperate. You know what I need to do? I need to increase the font size. It's just too small. It's hard for me to read this. Okay. Um, New glasses, yeah, that might Jeff. Help too. Getting old. Um, shut up. <laughs> I need glasses, Jeff. <laughs> uh, you too wearing glasses, must be not desperate, me. But I'm not complaining. Since I was hired in August of last year, I've put in about 200 to 250 hours on the CRJ and have been lucky enough to experience all the best parts of this job. Have had a diversion for a weather for weather, uh, rejected landing, not my landing, and a cat two approach to minimums and heavy fog. Loved all of it, although I'm sure after enough, I'll learn to despise most of these things. But for now, I'm enamored with it all. Anyway, I'm writing this feedback for a few reasons. One is the fact that my airline recently opened ATL as a domicile back in November. So in addition to seeing more of us RJ guys clogging up your taxiways, I hope that in the future one of them will be me and I can get a nice long overnight to meet up with you, Captain Jeff and or Dana, and have a few IPAs with you both. Secondly, I have yet to get a trip down to Georgia, so I haven't gotten to experience the joy of landing an Acme Connection CRJ 900 at the infamous Atlanta International, but I can't wait. That being said, up here in Chicago, there have been a few operational procedures I've become accustomed to, one of them being that we are kept fast on all of our approaches, and as I'm sure you're familiar with Chicago O'Hare, has five east-west parallel runways and controllers will do everything in their power to keep the west flow going until pilots start to refuse landings in that direction. So my question is, does Atlanta have similar procedures? Do they have prefer one landing direction over another? And as anyone who has flown into O'Hare knows, do they keep you coming in hot until a final approach fix? This was a little daunting during training, so they would keep us at a speed just over the required to get our last two flap settings in. So it was a fun dash to configure the second we uh, to configure the second we crossed Sibley or Taft's inbound on the ILS. Although once you do it a few times, it becomes a piece of cake. Anyway, thanks for the great show. Congrats on 300, and I'll be listening for the next 300. Talons, Douglas. <laughs> yeah, kind of a private. Yeah, we haven't heard that for a while. So yeah. that was uh, Colin, and uh, thank you for uh, the feedback, Colin, and uh, glad that you've been listening to us for a while, and so cool that we've kind of kept you company in your in your journey, and that now you're starting to see the uh, the fruits of that uh, by uh, flying for this regional um, Acme West Junior. Yeah, nice bit yeah. of feedback. I hope you guys so. get a chance to get together yeah, for that'd a Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Did anybody catch the irony in that feedback, though? The irony. Mm. Yes, the Chicago irony. Mm, no, tell us. How did we? What do we miss? Well, how he was talking about that Chicago needed an executive airport. Oh, yeah. Milwaukee. Yeah. And how Daly went and plowed you know, the oh, waterfront yeah, yeah. airport. Meigs. Yeah. Yeah, there isn't some irony. It just, I, that's one of the things I picked up on is because Meigs is no longer there now. All of a sudden, he, Chicago needs an executive airport. Did they call Meigs an executive right airport? Oh, I okay. think so. Yeah, I didn't catch that. Um, yes, I, I, I think that someone who is um, 
familiar with and relatively comfortable with flying into O'Hare um, will have no problem flying into Atlanta. Um, in fact, I think Atlanta is probably a little bit easier uh, than O'Hare because, you know, you have fewer all the runways in Atlanta are parallel, whereas in Chicago, you can be in a situation where they're, you know, coming they're every which way but loose. You know, they're poking out every direction on the compass you can think of up there. Um, but yes, they do the same thing here to keep the flow running. They will keep you at, you know, usually about 170, 180 knots until you're at the final approach fix, if you can, uh, just to keep the flow going. And as far as favorite flows, I, I don't think they push it as much as uh, what you're saying about O'Hare here. I think that in Atlanta, if the wind starts shifting and favors the other direction, usually the most you ever or I ever see is maybe four or five knots of tailwind before they finally go, okay, we're going to, we're going to switch it around. But, um, that's my experience. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I, with all the different major airports in this country, I have to say, I think Atlanta and, and Captain I that I just flew with, uh, we, we were talking about this actually on our approach into Atlanta just uh, yesterday. Atlanta's probably one of the most organized and easiest airport of a big airport to operate into. You pretty not much know if you operate into Atlanta on a fairly regular basis. Uh, what you're going to expect, when you're going to expect it, and how it's going to happen. Um, and you go into a place like Chicago or New York or Philly and and uh, even say to a certain extent Charlotte and, and uh, many other different centers. And I don't think they quite operate um, as well or as efficiently as Atlanta does. Uh, and I don't know whether it's airspace issues or whether it's runway layouts or what causes it or whether it's uh, center management, but it just always has seemed to me that Atlanta is always or has always been one of the smoothest run and easiest uh, major airports to operate in and out of. So if you're somewhat comfortable operating in, the Chicago, in and out of Chicago, I think you'd find uh, Atlanta a a cakewalk, yep. uh, relatively speaking. Um, believe it or not, Chicago is one of my least favorite airports in the country to operate into because the place is just a cluster. <laughs> you just can never figure out which way you're going to, as Jeff said, which which runway they're going to give you, which way you're going to land, how you're going to taxi. I mean, if you land on that north runway heading, I think it's either, yeah, it's east. If you land east on the north complex, you have about a, 25 minute taxi all the way around the airport. It's amazing. I think Zulu taxiway for a Yankee. Um, of course, I, I as first officer, I kind of pay attention, but to make sure we don't get in trouble. Yeah. But I, I don't memorize the airport charts. I'm not that familiar with them. But anyways, that north room, that north complex runway is just is amazing. So yeah, as far as landing um, and taking off is concerned, the flying part of it is easy. But uh, once you're on the ground at uh, O'Hare, it's uh it's a challenge, <laughs> but you it's get more comfortable with it over time though. You know, you start, you know, knowing which taxi, what, you know, what the taxi taxiway designations are. And, and then you kind of have an idea of what they're probably going to, you know, what route they're going to tell you to take. But yeah, it's definitely not as straightforward as uh, Atlanta. Atlanta's easy. At least they don't have Dixie. Yeah. And that's another thing I just, I, I, I don't understand. I remember when I was brand new at Acme 
airlines. And of course, this is not going to really be, I'm not going to be able to really translate this very well because Dixie, Delta, Acme. Okay. So here, let's, let me try it this way. Um, the airline is very similar to the uh, airline that I fly for, Acme. It's called Delta, and they're also a big operator in Atlanta. And supposedly the taxiway D uh, is not called taxiway Delta in Atlanta. They call it taxiway Dixie because now this is what they tell me, because there would be too much confusion between the taxiway designation and the call sign. And I'm thinking, but what about all those other airports that Delta operates in and to and out of that have taxiway Ds? Almost every single one of them do. <laughs> and they don't seem to have any trouble, you know, getting confused about the taxiway designation and the name of their airline. So I don't know that. Yeah, maybe it's just no, volume. Just, it's just designed to confuse all less visitors. I think it's just, uh, I think it's a tradition, actually, uh, that, that this yeah, is held on for years. Right. And, and no one's yeah, going to change, gonna change it. Well, you are in the South, Dixie. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there you go. Dixieland. There you go. All right. Uh, thanks again, Colin, for the feedback. And yeah, uh, actually, or absolutely, if you get a uh, layover in Atlanta, um, I'm sure that Dana and I can meet meet you somewhere. That'd be fun. Well, we talked about an earlier show about uh, APUs, uh, auxiliary power units. And we were uh, wondering about, you know, if smaller jets or somebody was asking, do smaller jets have APUs? And John uh, helped us out. He said in show 307, you had a multi-part question that asked, okay, about the small planes using APUs. And he said two turboprops that I know have uh, optional APU configurations, the Saab 340 and the Dornier 328. Dornier, I guess. Yeah, yeah could be equipped mostly allowing for air conditioning on the ground and in the Saab's case, allowing for a higher service ceiling. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so there you go. Uh, Dana, I don't think you were with us on that day uh, that we, that, that show, but uh, did the, um, the Embraer have an APU? It sure did. Okay. It was one of the few that did. Okay. The Saab, from what I remember, does not have an APU. I guess, well, he's saying that maybe that's an option. Maybe most carriers don't select that option. It, yeah, that one I don't know. But when I was with the Business Express Airlines in the early 90s, uh, they had Saabs, and none of them had an APU. Hmm. Uh, the first airplane that I know of that at the eight, uh, um, Business Express that had an APU was a BA-146. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's, you know, that's kind of a bigger regional, I guess. Yeah. It's a big, it's, it's a, it's a jet, a jet too. too so yeah. four engine jet. So no, there was, uh, no APU in the, in the SOBs I know of, and I don't know that would make a difference in the service sailing. I guess the only way I can think that that would make any difference is if they're actually operating the APU, it's providing more, uh, pressure or more, I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. Actually, you know, now that I, I don't, I don't <laughs> why the service ceiling know, would be higher. I mean, our limitations, we cannot operate, we can operate the APU, but we cannot operate the air mm -hmm. in flight. But I think that there are some, the, some airplane APU configurations that, that, that does happen, that they can operate it up to the service ceiling. Um, yeah, I don't know. Sure. Um, thank you, uh, John, for clarifying, or at least giving that, us that little data point. Um, here's some feedback from, well, they're going to tell you. 
Hi everyone, it's Fabian here from Germany and I'm sitting in Dublin right now with Steve from Ireland. Uh, he was also at the uh, Bolin meetup with Steph and we were talking meetups and uh, about Fairford and uh, the Riyadh Air Show and Farnborough coming up next year and Steve had the following idea which I, with, I think it's quite cool for a meetup to do. Cool, hi guys. Um, haven't had much contact with you guys um, outside of maybe the meetups or sending in is my first feedback. So. My idea was is that previously some you guys have had a meetup at uh, Farnborough, which is really good. Um, it's a really big air show, it's commercial, it's kind of cool, but it's just lacking the kind of fast yet fun and the noise and all of that really good crack. It's a bit kind of trucks and buses flying around, a lot of civilization, yeah, not everybody's interested in that. I know you guys are, but hey, Riyadh would be good. What we could do is we could throw in, in Fairford, 13th to the 15th of July, there's a whole week, but mainly the weekend. World's largest military air show. Many of you have been there before. I know PTUK were there with Carlos last year, going around taking photographs. Didn't get to see him, but it'd be good to meet up. We can, well, I'm planning on camping. Might bring over a big tent from Ireland. Carlos and Matt can bring the barbecue. And we can have a small little uh, PTUK APG village set up for people who want to come and stay and make it uh, probably a little weekend of it. So let us know what you think. I'll log on to the chat rooms and maybe throw it up as an idea and Fabian might also uh, remind people. So um, that's it, folks. Uh, thanks for that. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. <clears throat> All right. Thanks, Steve and Fabian. And um, I believe that's what our plan is, is to actually hit both of those air shows, the uh, Riot, the Royal Air, was it Royal uh, Air Tattoo? Is that what that stands for? Riot? Royal International Air Tattoo, I think. And uh, that's the weekend before Farnborough. And then the week of and the following weekend is the uh, the public Farnborough Air Show. And uh, we haven't done anything, um, made any plans officially yet, but I think that we've been talking about that. So that was a brilliant idea that we've already been talking about doing. Right? Is is our new producer already getting our media passes? Uh, if she hasn't, then she's really falling down on the job. No, she has no idea that we're <laughs> even considering doing that. But uh, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that she's more than capable of doing something like that. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, right, Nick? Didn't, hadn't we talked about uh, trying to trying to encompass both of the air shows? Oh yes, yeah, okay. I must. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you you were very yeah. keen on the idea, which is I think great. I don't know if I'll have enough get right. enough time off to do both, but I'll certainly be aiming well, I've for been for my primary vacation already, and I have like three weeks off in July, so it covers the entire Riot and Farnborough thing. So uh, that's Excellent. my plan. So we'll see what happens. But more information will be forthcoming. Um, Steve and Fabian. Um, Holden sent in this link to um, a website, autopilotandchill.com. I love that name. Um, and he says, hi, APG crew. Got this link in an email today from the ever funny ATC memes shop. At tw You'll remember last week we did the uh, funny um, Atis uh, Grayson uh, from ATC memes. Uh, so that's ATC M-E-M-E-S, and uh, I guess they have a, a swag shop, and 
Uh, Holden continues at $27. It's a bit steep, but Jeff and Dana, I think you'll really like the message. Cheers and keep the blue side up. And so I went ahead and grabbed a screenshot of the aforementioned uh, t-shirt and it says, save the mad dogs. And there's a nice picture of the very distinctive uh, T-tail of the DC-9 slash MD-80 series airplane. We can't say the MD-90 because the MD-90's elevators do not do this because they're powered. So they're always synced up. They're not split like the unpowered elevators on the DC-9 and the MD-80 series jets. I like the t-shirt. What do you think? I think it's great. I mean, you you really need to be in the know to understand that you need you know, one elevator up and the other one right. level uh, is a common way you guys <laughs> taxi around that usually confuses, causes a lot of confusion amongst conscientious pilots behind you. Okay, uh, excuse me, are your elevator yeah, supposed we, to look like that? Should we tell them that there's something wrong with their <laughs> yeah. airplane? <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Because we're usually quite attuned to that uh-huh. when you see other aircraft. It's common perhaps for guys to say uh, do you know your right mm. engine's venting or you know got a dribble here there's or a panel and open or something yeah that sort of thing yeah. but uh but that that of course is is something that commonly happens to you i gather because of the strange way your airplane's made i think by now most people but i do still remember almost three decades ago when i was a flight engineer taxiing out to runway 26 left in atlanta and looking at the mad dog in front of us and i'm looking going Wow, that there's something wrong with that airplane. There's that just does not look right. And I said something to the the co-pilot and the captain, and they kind of just chuckled and looked around. Kind of looked at each other and chuckled and said, "Ah, you don't know about the uh, Mad Dog, huh? No, what?" And then they said, "Yeah, the elevator's not not powered." I went, "Yeah, right. The elevator's not powered. That's a that's a jet airliner. That can't be." Oh yeah, that's that's the way the thing is is built. Anyway, I would imagine a lot of people would see that T-shirt and go, "What the?" You know, they wouldn't even recognize that as a T-tail, like nope. horizontal or vertical. Wouldn't have a clue. I think it has something to do with dogs. Yeah. Um, well, it does. Yeah, Mad I guess buttons. it does. Sort of. Um, moving on quickly here, uh, Matt, uh, who is a photographer, uh, sent us a couple uh, very nice. Um, I, I love black and white. I know you enjoy doing black and white. Um, Photography. Oh, absolutely. Nick. Yes, at times, yes. Uh, so he sent us a couple black and whites uh, from his uh, Flickr account. Uh, he says, good evening. Uh, at the bottom, I've linked to a couple of pictures in which I, t- which I took 17 years apart. The two pictures are the same plane, November 345 November Whiskey, at the same airport, Minneapolis-St. Paul, and on the same runway, 30 left. He said it may be may have been two nine left when the first picture was taken, but with different liveries, uh, uh, Northwest Airlines and Delta. I took the Northwest picture when I was in high school for my graphic arts class. I shot it on black and white film, which I developed myself. I recently discovered it among my memorabilia boxes in the garage. This is the only plane in the series of photos I shot, which had a clear enough registration number to read and which was still active. When I saw that it was still active, I created an alert for myself in FlightAware to alert me whenever it was coming into MSP. 
the uh, this morning I got an alert, which happened to fall on my day off. So I got up at 6 a.m. to go to the airport in time to catch its arrival. It just so happened that the plane came in on the same runway, which I took the original picture. So I was able to get nearly the same picture. Not only do I think the difference in the plane is interesting, but the changes in the background and particularly the growth of the two pine trees is fun to see. I thought you guys would enjoy the before and after comparison. And uh, yeah, it's very cool. Same airplane, different liveries. And uh, l- things have changed a little bit in the background. Uh, as you said, the trees have gotten grown a little bit bigger. Yeah, 17 years upon. I mean, we, we treat the uh, 320 as you know relatively modern technology. But of course, you know, that one's been going for 70 years, I, 17 years. I've been flying for... 24 years, and they were going well before that. You know, it's actually becoming quite old technology now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's what happens in life, right, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. just like <laughs> Nothing stands still. Wow. I know. Crazy. Um, Joe writes, Hi, Captain Jeff and AVG crew. I've caught the syndrome. Uh, and sadly, I'm sure it's terminal. Love your show. Can't wait for the next episode. I also have to say, Captain Nick's plain tales have to be my favorite segment of the show. And Joe, a lot of people share that same sentiment um, for oh, good reason. Nice. Thanks. Um, I've worked multiple jobs in the aviation world and presently I'm only 50 hours away from my commercial pilot certificate, pushing my way through my training. I'll borrow your line. I teach at Acme college as a pilot and air traffic controller tutor. The work is rewarding, but nothing beats flying. Interestingly, there is some precedent to the Pegasus accident. He's referring to the Pegasus 737 that kind of veered off the uh, runway somewhere in Turkey. Uh, there was a crash of a Fokker, Fokker, excuse me, uh, 100 I in South that. America. <laughs> hey, family show. It's a yeah, family show. I'll try that again. Where, where is that? Uh... Uh, family show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. There was a crash of a Fokker 100 in South America operated by TAM, airlines they had a deployment of a thrust reverser on takeoff and the first officer kept unwittingly overriding the auto throttles retarding of the engine with the failed system if i had to put money on it i'd say that there could be something similar happening happening with this event but the manufacturers say there is less than a one in a billion chance of this kind of event do you train for a similar situation at acme keep the shiny side up and may you have fair skies and tailwinds joe um, no, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen or trained for an event like a, either, uh, an inadvertent thrust reverser deployment or, or this kind of scenario that we're talking about here with the Pegasus 737. Uh, Dana, have you ever, do you recall any ever having that kind of, um, training? No, I, I don't, I, okay. No, I have not, but actually I used to talk, discuss that when I was an instructor at ACME as a ground school instructor, mm-hmm. uh, how it, easy it is because the interlock on the uh, the 88, uh, if, if you play with that, those stress reverses, there is a possibility in flight that interlock, over, the, you know, the interlock could possibly deploy a thrust reverser in flight. Mm-hmm. So um, I used to talk about it. We never trained for it. Um, but I get nervous when people start playing with those stress reverses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you have to know that if if you, you know, it may be such a shock situation that you just can't, you know, 
use your brain enough to see what's happening. But if you know or sense that there's a thrust reverser that's deployed in flight, um, probably the, the best thing to do, I mean, if you can't, you know, stow it, which probably you couldn't because you, I'm sure you wouldn't have activated the thrust reverse lever in flight. So it's kind of, re it's deploying on its own. Uh, the, the quickest thing to do, I guess, is just shut immediately shut down that engine. And that's the only yeah. way that you're going to have a chance to uh, recover from it. We, we talked about an incident, I don't know, it was last year or a year before, um, a, a Learjet taken off from a South Florida airport uh, had a thrust reverser deploy. And they um, either couldn't grasp what was happening to them or they, they didn't act quickly enough to shut down the uh, the offending engine and uh, they end up crash they ended up crashing um, now I think I think in our QRH there is a procedure in there for an inadvertent thrust reverser deploy. On, but I'm thinking on, you're going to have your hands full. It's going to be difficult to get to that QRH and run that procedure. There, there is, and you know, since we we're talking about that, it, it, it reminded me on the Brasilia. Um, it was a known problem, um, so we did train for that on the Brasilia, but that was a terrible prop mm -hmm. when a, when we had a, a failed governor, basically prop governor that would um, cause it to go into reverse. So mm -hmm. we did train for that back in in the, the Brasilia days, but I've never done it on a jet airplane. Uh, Nick, do you guys train for that at all? Yeah, I've had plenty of uh, uh, thrust reverse uh, cautions. Uh, I don't remember being given one that fully deployed, but certainly I've had thrust reverses. I mean, it's a very simple uh, action normally to shut the engine down because mm -hmm. uh, you you don't take the risk of that uh, engine uh, being providing power if the thrust reverser were to deploy. It could uh, just turn the airplane on its back. So, um, yeah. yeah, if you're in any doubt. And, of course, uh, with four engines, that's a relatively safe thing to do. Of course, with two, that requires a little bit more thought. But generally speaking, yes, you, you still more or less do the same thing. Just grab the uh, the engine master and, and kill that engine. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, I don't think we actually – I'm trying to think if I've actually trained for – Flying around with a thrust thrust. I might actually have done done it once, but that's in an awful lot of simulators over the years I've been doing this. Yeah, if I ever if I think about it ever, you know, because sometimes you'll you'll end a simulator session and they'll say, "Hey, we have a little extra time if you guys want to try something." And uh, if I think about it, it'd be kind of interesting to see at least you know how the simulator reacts. It doesn't necessarily mean that the airplane's going to act exactly the same way. No. It would be interesting to see what it might feel like to have an inadvertent thrust reverser deployment like that. Mm. All right. Well, a couple extra things here in the, I was uh, being optimistic and uh, I think we're getting close to that time of the show where we end it and say, uh, you know, uh, the things that we always say at the end of our show, we're going to keep the uh, couple of uh, pieces of feedback in our folder for and move it to the next show. Uh, Ivor sent in uh, some chemtrail conspiracy theorist news. Um, Nealus uh, asks a question about colorblindness, which might be nice to have the doctor with us uh, when we answer that one. So we'll move that to the next show. And another piece of a very small piece of audio from the Flying Kiwi. We'll play that one on the next 
show as well as maybe your feedback. If you want to send us some of that, head it, uh, send it to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com, or you can use the, uh, uh, fill out the feedback, contact us form on the website. If you happen to, uh, have downloaded our app, which you should, uh, iOS and Android, uh, the airline pilot guy app and, uh, the respective stores and it's free, no advertising. And it has a way for you to, uh, send in feedback as well as listen to the shows, both the video and audio and much more. Uh, the website has a lot of stuff there as well to learn about the crew and the community and how to join the coffee fund, merchandise, um, and a lot of, a lot more stuff. So check that out if you don't mind. We like stuff. We do like stuff. Stuff, stuff, stuff. And um, social media. Uh, Captain Nick, maybe you can help us with that. Uh, yeah, uh, we certainly can. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Just look uh, for the handle at APG Crew. And on Facebook, uh, you'll find us at the standard Facebook address and search for Airline Pilot Guy. All right. And we also have another kind of quasi social media thing, a Slack group. And uh, we have our uh, Slack group manager and creator to tell us how you can join us there. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel, for informing us about that. And again, just a reminder, it's HI11E1, not not L's, because uh, Hillel doesn't like L, apparently. Um, That's an L of a thing to say. It is an L of a thing to say, isn't it? All right. Mm. And with that, um, we wish you a great week and great weekend. We'll be back again next week for the next episode, 310. And until then, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Talons, Douglas. We'll see you soon. Good day.
airline, rear or fictionalized, mentioned, implied, or accidentally slipped by any of the participants, guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard, on this or any prior episode of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. It ain't Boeing, I ain't going.